Greetings. Ian. Hey, guys. How are you? It's Christian. I'm doing great. How are you? Really good. Really good. Let me uh, make sure I'm um, recording to the right uh, audio thing here. Do you guys want me to record my end of the audio that I can send to you, or do you want to record it yourself? Uh, I, it would be better if you record it, and then I can slip it in. It'll sound a lot yeah. better, obviously. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, but but, but if it, I am recording your Skype, so if it fails, I've got something. That's good. That's good because this uh, the hard drive in this iMac is uh, not what it used to be. But I will uh, I will start a new audio recording right now. Uh, say this is set to this. Um, okay. What year is your iMac? Uh, so it's a you know maybe it's a twenty fourteen or fifteen um, one of the the five K iMacs uh, that I bought when I was still at the law firm and had money for such things. Oh. Okay. Um, but it has the, you know, it has the, you know, the so-called fusion drive. So it's not all flash storage. Mm-hmm. And I think over the course of a couple of moves, um, the the spinning disc is, it's it's not great. So yeah, it's feeling feel a little like, beleaguered. You, you, I feel like you and I, in some ways, are leading kind of like parallel lives in many ways, but separated by, you know, I, I'm now 63. Um, I know you're, Holy cow! You're, you're like 20, I hope to, you're like 24. I hope to get to 63. Yeah, yeah. I'm approximately well, tw- 24 in spirit. 24. Least. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm 63 in spirit. I the used sad to... part, Ian, is that you get, you get Dan and he gets me. <laughs> and w- wait until you hear the deal that Dan got. That's the really bad one. <laughs> well, so I'm actually 46, but but um, you know, close enough. Uh, sure. but, but the reason I say that is because um, I, I think my iMac is like a 2012 iMac or something like that. And I think it was even pre-Fusion Drive. And so at some point, we this thing is still working partly because we opened it up and put in an SSD that I bought. Mm-hmm. And yep. that, if you, I've, I've, I've thought about doing that. If you've ever done that surgery, it's very you should only do it if you're willing, I think, to say that the Mac is done for if you make a mistake. Because oh. it, is a, it is a really – it looks like open-heart surgery because you've got to take the, the, you know, the glass off the front. Oh, my. You've got to get the like, suction cup thing that pulls, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah you got to get them. I think, you, I think you'd use two or four. I forget how many. Maybe it's just one. But, but of course, you know, the glass is on there with very strong magnets. And so you kind of pull the glass mm-hmm. off and then you get behind it and all this stuff comes out. It looks like <laughs> you know, when Meredith came by and saw and I, th- I feel like we had a visitor, too. They've like, well, that thing is never going to work again. Right. Because it really yeah. does look like all the guts are out. And the, oh, but I have to say it is so satisfying when you get that SSD back in there. Uh, you you put the everything back together and the thing actually boots and it is like a new Mac because wow. it is super yeah, fast. Yeah, I know exactly, exactly. Like, so I have an even older iMac that is actually currently sitting in my office. I need to move it out tomorrow because I'm moving in about uh, three days. Actually, oh wow! Um, so I should probably collect my belongings. It's about um, time. <laughs> that one, that one is like. That's from when I was in law school. So this is probably a 2007 iMac. And wow. so that I really am at that at the point with that one. I'm like this thing is either, you know, needs to be recycled or I need to like, you know, attempt some way to uh, you know, RoboCop this thing. So I think I might actually try it with that one and then if I get it wrong, um, mm. no, no no harm done. But yeah. if I do it right, then I'll know enough that I could do it on the one that my wife and I actually use all the time. Huh. Like it like it used to be like if you could upgrade the CPU or the RAM or something like those were the biggest bang for the buck but these days like yeah if you replace a spinning hard drive with an ssd that is like the oh, it's, yeah, it's, by it's far the biggest upgrade you can make for your machine these days hmm. yeah I, I remember going from um four megabytes of ram to eight megabytes of ram uh this was the first you know meaningful computer upgrade i ever did yeah and it was i, I couldn't believe it and, <laughs> right, uh, right. It, you know it's like wow eight megabytes of ram this is really something and i think it's a, an upgrade along those lines because well that it's a similar kind of upgrade really because you know in those days i remember in those days like upgrading the amount of ram just meant that your uh your computer hit the swap drive hit the swap disk a lot less right 
it. So basically, exactly. right. it's just saving like hard. It's still the hard drive. The hard drive has always been the enemy. Mm. It's always always been the enemy. Exactly, <laughs> that spinning magnetic disk that just fails constantly. Yeah. like deletes all our stuff. It's right. horrible. That right. has always been the enemy. That's it's exactly right. Always been the enemy. Well, it was the enemy while it was also our miraculous friend. I mean, there was a time when that was a dramatic advance and was awesome. I, I yeah. Guess. Well. Sure. Although the thing that like the sad part of human history, which I feel like we're like pretty much coming out of, is when everything important was stored on those spinning disks, but approximately nobody was backing them up correctly, <laughs> and so just like you know, so much stuff was just lost because something got jostled or something got moved or these things just fail in the way they do. And then today. Um, you know, I feel like most data is actually, you know, in cloud storage where it is like appropriately backed up. So if your I'm, you know, if your iPhone falls in a lake, for a lot of people it's not a problem. But there was that weird little moment in human history where it wasn't on paper and it wasn't backed up, and right. a lot of that era of human history is just gone. Yeah. Well, I mean, I so I, I, maybe this is so. I don't, I don't know what this is. So. My like my gut was to say that almost all of human history is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, as a first order of approximation, like a hundred percent is gone. Um, I think but that's then it's, right. But then there's one of these things, like like most people, uh, most people who've ever lived or like alive today or within a certain band of today, right? So like, yeah. like there are way more, do- like almost all documents to a first order approximation might exist right now. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. Well, especially if you think um, about the number of people who can read and write now. And the amount of reading and writing people do now, even versus, say, 25 years ago, when right. a person who didn't have a sort of, you know, a vocation that involved a lot of reading and writing, how much were they ever actually writing down, right? Like, not that much. How much were they reading? You know, maybe, maybe they read a book, maybe read the newspaper. But, like, right now, the, the I think we're engaged in the most amount of reading and writing that human beings have ever, ever done, even compared to, say, 20 years ago, um, which is, you know, I don't know if it's clearly a good thing, but it does seem to be true. 20 years ago or 40 years ago? Hmm. I'd say, like, I feel like you're using using the universal 20 years ago approximation, and I feel like it's it's not appropriate in this instance. I think Ian's Ian's thinking pre Facebook. Yeah, pre Facebook, pre smartphones. That's a a big one. Like the the, pre pre texting, right? Um, Pre email. Um, you know, like I think about my grandmother who, uh, she's actually, you know, by the standards of, you know, her woman growing up in her ear, she's, you know, very well educated, but I don't know how much she would actually be writing on a day-to-day basis right now if she did not have the ability to text her friends, you know, her family, things like that, uh, and vice versa. So I don't know. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting because I used to think it was, um, you know, cause when you start texting, you realize this is a way better way to communicate than, than phone calls. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And and, and and a huge part of that is the asynchronous nature of it, right? Like totally. You, uh, mm-hmm. Someone has to get; they can get back to you when on their time, and it's not, you know. And that's something you don't quite appreciate until you really get into it. I think, um, but yeah. of course, now it's super easy with whatever messaging service you use to send an audio message, right? Like you could mm-hmm. send it, um, and yet still, like even though I, I never do that, I never send. Like I never, you know, I'll, I'll dictate message and send it as a text sure but it's still I, exactly seems, it, yeah like and, the asynchronous and doesn't that's, really that's, that's so funny right yeah. like because you could just as easily send the audio of yourself attempting to dictate right. which would have approximately perfect fidelity whereas you know dictation makes mistakes that are funny all the time and yet i also never do that uh, and I would get annoyed if someone did it to me. Like you're making me sit here and listen to an audio message. Like, <laughs> right. come on. what are you? Like, what are you doing? Now, now maybe, 
maybe if my audio messages somehow landed in Overcast and I could listen to them at two and a half X or something like that, mm. maybe that would be better. Ooh, I don't know what it that is. That would be but, nice. Yeah, but it, of course it's not. I mean, that w- even that one. It, there's something about the the text and reading. It's not just asynchronous, but it's like the way that you you consume it by giving it a quick glance and. And kind of yeah. you invest as much into thinking about it as you want to read into it. Like with an audio message, you have to kind of give it your full, att- I don't know, your full attention or something. I, I, I think that's right. Yeah. And I, and I think that um, I wonder if that'll remain true as uh, headphones get smaller and smaller and more ubiquitous. So like we've already right. moved from wired headphones, like, you know, so I see AirPods everywhere now. Yeah. And I think that those are going to only get smaller and to the point where they're kind of almost meant to be in your ear all the time. Because the main reason I don't listen to audio messages a lot and I wouldn't want to get them is because I don't want to play that in public. Like if I'm sitting at a, you know, a bar at a restaurant or something, I don't, I don't want to play that for everybody. But I right. also don't want to put my headphones in and look like a weirdo, you know, blah, blah, blah. I wonder <laughs> if that will remain true. I don't know. I, AirPods, I think, are the best product Apple's made in the last like three or four years. You know and what this they, all highlights yeah. is the importance of emojis. Because one of the one of the reasons yeah. why text is deficient, uh, as against speech, is you're losing a lot of the affect channel, mm-hmm. the emotional mm-hmm. channel in in text. Mm-hmm. But with emojis, you you get to add some of that emotional stuff back, but in a yes. text in a text form. So you're getting yes. uh, you know text plus emojis is sort of like the best of both. Um, I think anyway. Totally. So I, I think that's right. I'm, I've been fascinated by emojis for a long time because they are a you know, much like, um, you know, uh, Chinese uh, characters or hieroglyphics, they are meaning based, not sound based. And so actually I could exchange, you know, short emojis with somebody who didn't speak English and I didn't speak, you know, whatever language they spoke. And we could actually like engage in rudimentary communication because it is a it is a, a sentiment based writing form. Um, and, and so I, I've always loved them and I, I think they're only getting richer. So here's the thing. I think if there's ubiquitous, if they're ubiquitous headphones, right, where everyone's wearing headphones all the time, or you, you would know that well, probably the person's wearing headphones. And so there is this kind of push toward, well, maybe audio would actually work. I bet I would still text and prefer text and getting my audio, to, my uh, phone to read it to me rather than hearing the person in their own voice. Really, mm. I, I bet. Like, I bet having something like a like a really good Siri read to you. That last mm-hmm. step is the one that I, I and I bet you would then have audio emojis. <laughs> <laughs> right. mm. uh, here's why mm. I don't. Here's why I don't think that. Uh, mm. uh, for me, the benefits of text are about the fact that I can reread ho- a whole or part. I can go back to it and reread it quickly later. The little part that I want, and with audio, it's just you. you ha- you end up starting at the beginning and ending at the end, and it's very hard to get a little bit in the middle uh, mm-hmm. that that you can just hear the little bit that you want. Oh, I want to re- I want to listen to that middle sentence again. Yeah. Right? You can't mm-hmm. really do that. Right? Yeah, but what I have mm-hmm. in mind though is suppose that my mom calls me, right, or or it sends me one of these messages. What I have in mind is that my Siri or whatever will then say, um, you know, your mom has gotten in touch and she wants to know blah, 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 and will summarize the semantic meaning of what she said. Right? Oh, and well, then that's I can, quite and different. Then say, you you know said what? reading it to you. Let me, so. Yeah, but I, I bet I would say, well, tell me what she said, you know, if I wanted to hear more. And then if I still mm-hmm. wanted to hear more, I might say, OK, play, play me what she said. I bet I would, you know, I bet there would be all these little things. And then maybe she could add a little audio emoji, which would be some <laughs> well, kind of sound effect. <laughs> Right. And, and, and the question is, which we already see with these assistants, you know, Google demonstrated this to, uh, to great um, effect and controversy, is if you've got uh, a smart assistant who could actually, like, say, call a restaurant, there's actually no reason it couldn't also respond to a text message based on some, like, you know, 
basic inputs from you. Right. Which means at a certain point, if everybody's doing that, we're, we're essentially having these AI assistants talk to one another uh, about us. Um, and I think that actually might be a great relief for a number of people. It might, um, I know a lot of people who actually would find that to be kind of relaxing. It's interesting to think about how dating would work uh, in a world in which we're essentially having, you know, the the you know, series of uh, two strangers <laughs> talk to each other about uh, whether they should get a drink or whether they should. But of course, um, in the movie Her, the, the, the assistant winds up going off and being with the other assistant and leaving point. poor Joaquin Phoenix. Excellent point, Joe. Excellent point. I, I, I and this is now the second conversation in a row with a third person that has reached the AIs talking to each other part of the conversation. Although we got to I it know. much faster with the end. <laughs> well, you know, well, we talked about this on our last show, two shows ago now. With Paul. With yeah. Paul. You know, this is the, mm-hmm. what we talked about, Ian, was, um, you know, the Google AI is calling to mm-hmm. try to cancel your cable service, right? But, of course, the, uh-huh. the cable company will have their own retention bot, and it'll be your cancel bot versus their retention sure. bot, right? And it, it, <laughs> Absolutely. And, of course. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, so, but I imagine, too, these things will get really good at, 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 at knowing what we mean, and so we won't have to talk to them in complete sentences. And so I imagine no, a bunch of people no. using these kinds of grunts. Uh, just, yep. uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, this actually happened. Full thing. This happened. Re- there was a news story, I think it was last year, where an AI, uh, two AIs had, I think, developed their own vocabulary that the people who were uh, who had created them and were experimenting with them could not comprehend. Yeah. And they quickly took them both offline uh, that they had developed basically their own language, their yeah. own dialect. Uh, That's and interesting. They, and the people who developed them found that um disquieting and <laughs> yeah quite un- quite unsettling right and not helpful but like, i suppose it's better than the like ai chatbots that have become white supremacists because, because they say. were trained on twitter you know like, <laughs> a, like at least they're expressing sentiments that don't have any kind of clear human meaning well, rather gonna, than we must secure a future for white children was, and, uh, it's, gonna, and so forth i was gonna ask though ian like if, if two if, if two ais are talking to each other and no one can understand what they, they're saying are they really nazis that's well, a question like, you know, it's just like if a tree falls in the forest, it's the same kind this, of question, this, right? This is what I'm going to spend my career answering, uh, and I, I and I hope the answer is no, but yeah. uh, I suppose I suppose we won't find out till it's too late. No, we won't. Well, so obviously, listeners, this is our Supreme Court roundup show. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's how it that's goes. The, our annual Supreme clear. Court yeah. roundup show, where we, we our tradition is to focus on a single case, and it's reached its natural terminus, which is we're not actually going to get to talking about. Well, of the course, case. we're going to get to talking about. No, it. I'm not sure. Our guest today, we, we, we've begun at the terminus. I, if you haven't guessed by now, our guest today obviously is Frank Pasquale. <laughs> yep, sure. <laughs> no, no, it's it's the world famous Ian Samuel. No, is it your well, birthday today, Ian? Uh, it is my birthday in about a week. Um, oh. So August 6th is my birthday, the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. So mm. what's up, 9-11 babies? Mm. Uh, my, tra- my tragedy is much worse. I think the last show, that so you've been on once before with Dan in our crossover, yeah. crossover episode a long time ago. Uh, you also put that episode, I, I think, on your uh, feed as well. So that was a, mm-hmm. a first Monday's episode in addition mm-hmm. to an oral argument episode. I think that came up. I think your birthday being on. Yeah, uh, that, that feels about right. It feels about right because, you know, we uh, we struggle so much during the summer months to fill the fill the time. Like we don't want to record nothing all summer because then people would forget we exist. But right. the, the court gives us nothing. And so, you know, unlike you guys, you live in the, you know, the world of ideas. You can talk about anything <laughs> you really want. We, we have to, we have some obligation to actually tether ourselves to the, you know, the dog food the Supreme Court gives us. And yeah. in summer they give us nothing. So I wouldn't be surprised if we were, you know, uh, you know, quite grateful for the opportunity to cross release an episode uh, with the two of you uh, because our listeners, you know, they're, 
they're, they're a finicky bunch. And if yeah. an episode doesn't come out on Monday, they get real mad. Yeah, <laughs> this we have set up an expectation that they cannot expect anything from us. And so that I, know, I think is so to our advantage. That. Yeah, because I'm so jealous. of Our that. show is not called like Oral Argument Tuesdays or anything like that. I it's know. Just oral I argument. know. It's, it's like you know maybe it comes out on a Saturday. Maybe so. This this episode is gonna. So I we should also say because uh, so you know I'm gonna be leaving town for a little bit and I'll probably like put this episode up on Monday actually and hit the button mm-hmm. you know to say but it won't actually release until the next Saturday and it's automatic right. at that point. It's just gonna be it right. So right. I don't know what's gonna happen between now and then. Could be anything. Brett, Brett Kavanaugh could die. Right. Well, that's grim. That's grim. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> you know, that, not. Of course. Just not. saying, that's a possibility. Yeah. It's a, um, uh, I doubt one the, of us could die. Right. I, I doubt that my um, constitutional amendment um, changing the nature of the Supreme Court will pass in that amount of time. Yeah. Or mine changing the nature of Senate. Yeah. Election. Yeah. You, you, well. Um, oh, that, that's right. Yeah. You have a. You have a. I, I like. I like that proposal. Of course, my proposal is to abolish the Senate and pack the Supreme Court. So I think that if neither of yours happen, mine probably isn't on the docket either. Well, as you know, Ian, we've talked on Twitter. Like, like you have to threaten to pack the court in order to get the amendment. That, exactly. That's, yeah, I, you got, that's what you got to do. I have to be bad cop to your good cop, right? <laughs> and I'm very, I'm very happy to do that. Well, right? I like, am, I'm very happy yeah. to put you in the position of saying, "Look, deal with me or deal with the crazies." Like Ian, that sounds good. Well, it's just that you know, packing because I, I would say, like you know, if we, we're either going to reach an agreement on this amendment or we're going to appoint a hundred new justices, like you know, why, why, why just say just four or five? I mean, there was this uh, Washington Post thing with Ian Ayers and who, who's the other yeah. person on that one? Um, I was trying to remember that I'm too. Sorry. Ian Ayers and somebody, somebody else, E.L. Yeah, I'm, and and they're well known. So I, I, and in fact, I think I know them. But like, whatever. Um, I don't mean to give them short shrift. In fact, I feel bad right now. I even brought it up. And don't I feel bad. Second part. I just feel bad. Like I, you know, I don't want to. They, they have, they have plenty of shrift. They're, they're doing fine. They, they probably, <laughs> probably do. But um, and and their proposal was um to commit to like balancing the court. I think that's the way that they put it. Right. Yeah. And yeah, court court balancing. I like that. I I like court building. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, uh, and and part of what the, the proposal was is um, is that these people would be put on the court. The new people would be put on the court with like a, a a statute that would restrict them to eighteen years, after which they would not lose their life tenure, but but go back right. to the circuits. And look, I I've thought about it really not much, and 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 know very little about the law on this as to whether there's any precedent. But that seems to me blatantly unconstitutional. Like it's kind of, kind of. I was wondering that myself. Like, I mean, I understand that they could be sitting by. I mean, it, it calls into question, really, if you really think hard about it, like the entire practice of sitting by designation. Because what they really have in mind is these judges sitting by designation on the Supreme Court for eighteen years by statute, and then they go back home. And yeah, I mean, look, it, I don't think there's a rich body of case law on this, but I, the the question is, who would decide the constitutionality of that statute? And I feel like it would involve the new people. Yeah, uh, actually, in this Twenty Eighth Amendment post that I have, I think one of, one of the things is that after the eighteen years, they will be able to. According, I think I, I think I set it up so the court itself can decide and regulate as it usually does. Like they can still ride circuit, but so was, like, could they pass a statute now that says uh, all nine members shall mm-hmm. within the next year? Um, mm-hmm. uh, just ride circuit, just but but they they have to step down from active service. I don't think Congress can do that. I don't. I don't think establishing a Supreme Court in Article Three, you know, includes the power of Congress to manipulate. You know, I don't, anyway, I don't know exactly what life tenure means, but I don't think Congress by statute can force retirements from active service. Well, I think the only thing it can't do, strictly speaking, is uh, deny salary. 
because that th- that's specifically enumerated. That's true. They they can't they can't diminish the salary, and they, and they must they must serve for terms of good behavior. The question is, what does it mean to serve exactly? Right, and I answer I I don't know. I have no idea. Um, and I wonder there have been periods in American history for, for example, I think courts were certain courts were abolished. And the, ju- and the federal judges on them were then reassigned elsewhere, things like that. I mean, you know, the, the kind of extreme example is, well, you know, what if you retroactively limited the service on the Supreme Court of all nine judges, right. all, all nine justices, or let's let's say maybe the chief justice is special because he's actually named in the Constitution. So the associate justices are then relegated to a court that hears, you know, that has jurisdiction over essentially almost nothing. Right. Right. Like. You can play games with this in a million ways, and the question is who would adjudicate – like assuming it were effective immediately, who is the Supreme Court that would adjudicate the uh, constitutionality of that law? You know, Answer? I don't know. But moving lower courts around and you know, abolishing them, m- taking the judges and putting them on other courts. I mean Congress is specifically given the authority to establish lower courts. Mm-hmm. You know? No, I suppose but, you mm-hmm. can also uh, – in the same statute that makes these other changes, if one were really playing uh, sort of hardball – uh, you would include uh, an exception to any jurisdiction to review the statute. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could also, mm-hmm. in the very same statute, also prohibit the expenditure of any federal funds uh, mm-hmm. litigating the question. So, so to really yes. sort of button it down 110 uh, percent, and then you simply, you know, we dare everyone to do something different. And let's find out. I think the best evidence that it would be unconstitutional to pass a statute forcibly removing a Supreme Court justice from active service on the Supreme Court is that Mitch McConnell did not already do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's 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 what everybody says in response to my when when I say to pack the courts, they say, well, isn't this just going to, you know, isn't this just going to encourage Mitch McConnell to do the same thing? And I'm like, you know, my brothers and sisters, do you think if Mitch McConnell (laughs) thought he had the political capital to pack the courts right now that he wouldn't have already done it? He's not not doing it because he doesn't know it exists. He just can't doesn't think he has the votes. Right. But they would he would do that tomorrow. Absolutely would do that tomorrow if he if he thought that he could if he had the political power to do so. Well, he Um, would have the political power. Like if he thought that that the Democrats um, themselves would pack the court. Then, and others thought that that would actually create the political power for. So the reason he doesn't have the political power is because they don't actually believe that Democrats will pack the court. And, well, well, so so yeah. so think that through though, because I'm not I'm not I think that's I think that's a common response, but I'm not so sure it's right. So let's let's play that out right now. If you're Mitch McConnell, and let's say you do think you have the political power to do it, and you do think that there is a decent chance that radicals like me will get their way and will add say six seats to the Supreme Court the next time they have a chance. Packing the court now actually doesn't provide any clear solution to that problem because you already have a majority, right? And you can't – I mean you could have a little more of one, but like you've got a really good majority right now. And if you do it now, all that's going to do is guarantee – it'll take the probability from like 75 to 100 that the next time the Democrats are in power, they'll do it. But right now you might think like, well, look, there's a – let's say 25 percent chance or or 75 percent chance that they won't actually have – the, the political will when the time comes. So we're going to hold off because right now we're in charge. So I'm, not, I'm actually not so sure. I, I, no, I completely agree with that. What, and indeed, what I'm saying is that the uh, that the um, what, what's the right word here? The the, um, uh, uh, the fact that they're not doing it now 
um, is a reflection of their estimation of the probability that Democrats actually will do it in the future. But the larger point mm-hmm. is that if Democrats do it, they are guaranteed to do it the next time they come into power. And so there is this this is a this but is a state Ian's, of disequilibrium for but sure. I think it's, if it's not Ian's point, I'll make it my point, which is to say it, he could think the probability of Democrats packing the courts when they get the opportunity to be point nine. And it would mm-hmm. still not be a good idea to pack it now. Uh, yes. Because it will take it from 0.9 to 1. Yeah, that's and, fine. And, or it could be 0.98, and yeah. it would be a yeah. bad idea to do it now. Right. Yeah, so know. it's not really about his assessment uh, because you, you, want to pr- you want to prevent its being a certainty for as long as you can. I'm not sure about 0.9, 0.98, because if you do pack it now, and you, it depends on what you think the attitudes of the packed court will be toward precedent and what kinds of precedents you can lock in now. So there's, there's a little bit of a complicated estimation mm. of what the, mm-hmm. the court dynamics are going to be right. in an era of packing, whether they will just kind of completely you know, drop the veil. And... We also don't know what his time horizon is. Like, right. is it, does he think yeah. in terms of, you know, there is uh, the, within the next year and then after the next year, it might as well be an infinite time away from now. What because I would... after a year, my right. predictions are so uh, unstable because right. so much new information will be available. So many things will happen um, right. that we just don't know what his time well, horizon I, I, is. What I would be thinking if I were him is that... Um, uh, to to pack the court now guarantees the disequilibrium state, which will which will create the uh, w- which will lead to a constitutional amendment, right? And yes, and th- that is so. I would be thinking that that would be the guarantee, not that necessarily the packing will occur, but it, it will occur. But it would kind of guarantee this disequilibrium dis- state. And they right. don't actually. And he doesn't benefit from a constitutional amendment because right now, like they, you know, if you look at the number of elections they've won and the representation on the court, they are winning that game, right? They're w- it, it, hugely winning that game. And, and right. so they don't benefit all, at all from departing from uh, – I keep saying they. I'm thinking of Mitch McConnell and uh, the Senate GOP. And co. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's why the, the most intelligent response I've heard to these proposals from my you know, sort of like thoughtful Republican friends is don't pack the courts now. Amend the Constitution now to set the number of justices at nine. Right. Because right now you you have like you have big majorities or you, you have a big majority in the House, you have a reasonable majority in the Senate, you have a lot of state legislatures. The Democrats will be in power again eventually, and they might listen to these kind of hotheads. Let's head that off at the pass now by by passing proposing a constitutional amendment that would set the number of justices at nine. I think that is an actual threat to what I'd like to do. Um, mm-hmm. And and that that to me would be very hard to dislodge because you wouldn't just need majorities in Congress. You'd also need, you know, majorities in the in the huge number of state legislatures that they have. Uh, and they'd need a couple of Democratic states to do it, but not that many. Right. Um, and so the fact that they're not doing that, I think, is a good estimation that, like, they don't think that people are going to listen to radicals like me. Um, and, you know, they're professional politicians. So who am I to judge? Yeah. Boy, it's setting it at nine. Would, I mean, I think nine is part of our problem. In an age of legal, in a, an age of legal realism, nine does not work. Um, you you want to go to uh, you want like an FEC model balanced? No, no. I, I, you know, my, my, proposal, my proposal is 18, 18 year terms. Um, and um, Senate, um, the Senate has to vote to disapprove candidates, and after three disapprovals, the Supreme Court passes on qualification, and then right, uh, right, right, and, and then once there are three qualified candidates, the Senate can choose one. But that basically means there's a new member every year, a and new member one member year, rotating and off one member year. off. So, so in order to dominate the court, like you have to get more than a president's eight year term, you have to get that ninth 
right? So, so yeah. if you want to dramatically change the court, it needs. So what, what I'm trying saying. to do is to create a kind of representation which is smeared out over time and smeared out enough so that kind of one presidential era doesn't completely dominate, even though it does have right. a major influence, right? Right. So I think it creates the right. You know, I'm I'm not wedded to any particular numbers. It can be anything. Also, 18 has the virtue of not creating precedent for in, in deadlocked cases, which I think is actually. Yes, I like that. I, I think there's something to that. Um, and, and I know that, you know, look, we started with six, right? I mean, yeah. I don't think that anybody would, would complain about the early era of the Supreme Court as not being able to get its job done. We started with six. And then under Lincoln, we went to 10 for a while and then down to eight for a while after that. So actually, the, the odd numbered feature is, you know, by you know, the standards of American history, relatively new. Right. Yeah. We, we de facto went to eight for a year and a half uh, after the death of my old boss. Uh, the court operated, you know, they, they had some hiccups, but they were basically fine. Uh, I don't think there's anything bad about an even numbered court. Yeah. I mean, there, there were, you know, as you know, there were a bunch of liberals who who complained that the court couldn't do its job with eight. And this is part of the effort to get Merrick Garland on the court. Right. To get say, you know, the court's got to work. Yeah. And the court's not working. And I don't know. I mean, I think you do get more deadlock with a lower number um, if, if it's tied up like it is with with 18 maybe you, you would get a little bit less um the other thing about 18 though is it would get it would move us away from uh each justice being quite as important i mean you basically yeah that, that i like value. a lot and that would move and us you, past the age of like supreme court bobbleheads and, and your notion is is they would sit in panels right well and I, then I, have an in-bank procedure i would allow them to have a panel and in-bank yeah i think I, I forget the way i wrote it but but i envision like allowing the court to set its own procedures including panels and in-bank do you think how, how with an eighteen member court, how small should the panels be permitted to be? Three, five, seven. See here, I think as a matter of constitutional law, like what should you put in the constitution? I don't think you should say. I think that's that's the kind of thing where the Supreme Court itself can kind of see what works, um, right? As an apex institution, as you've called well, it, Joe, or, or maybe have a statutory. To Congress, it seems to me also without violating the separate separation of powers could weigh in on a thing like that, or at least you, you know, could structure about the Constitution this too. I mean, once, I wonder. Yeah, once, I wonder. Once you write a, a constitutional amendment, of course, you're thinking, maybe include some of this other stuff, preventing, filling in the holes. Like, it's always bothered me that Congress, in response to present issues, current issues, there's always a proposal to monkey with the Supreme Court, like, whether it's jurisdiction stripping or something else, right? And, and boy, maybe now would be a good time to prevent it from doing that. And, and so I do worry if Congress has statutory ability to monkey with Supreme Court procedure, it will do so in substantively charged situations for right. substantive reasons. And, and like, I, what, what business does Congress have, like, weighing in at a particular, what information is it going to well, get that helps it determine, well, like, what size panels should be? Sure. Well, just just to push back a little bit, for example, the most important thing that the Supreme Court, I think, does is it gets to set its own agenda. So it has a com- an almost completely discretionary cert docket. But that is a matter of congressional um, affordance, right? Mm-hmm. It didn't used yes. to be that way. And I've often wondered, somebody suggested to me by email um, uh, maybe, a, maybe a month ago, what if Congress passed a law that required the assent of six justices to uh, grant cert in a case, Right. Would that not actually have the effect – like wouldn't that have all sorts of nice effects and would that law be OK? And I, th- I think that that law would be fine because Congress has many times adjusted the criteria for the Supreme Court's docket and no one has ever raised any problem with that. Um, and you could phrase it in various ways. Maybe there's like an automatic right of appeal to the Supreme Court, but if you know, uh, you know, know, three justices uh, don't want to hear it, then, then it won't or whatever. Like you could do it in a lot of ways, but – 
I, I think that would be okay. But again, the question is, well, who's going to say the answer to who it's okay? And the answer is, well, those those nine guys. Um, no, no, we have we also have an example in the federal circuit, uh, specifically with reference to the size of embank procedure. So mm-hmm. the the organic statute for the federal circuit. allows the court, and this is a holdover from the old CCPA days, the Court of Customs and Patent Appeals, which uh, always sat in bank and had five members. And so when the Federal Circuit succeeded to the CCPA's work in 1982, Congress both enlarged the court and said it could sit uh, in panels up to five. So Congress Mm. did create a situation Mm -hmm. where the Federal Circuit has been told – you know, explicitly up to five, which is implicitly not bigger than five, right? And mm-hmm. but it mostly sits in three. Interestingly, Congress didn't say when it should sit in five, if ever, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Although it does in some trade cases and basically seemingly at random in some <laughs> other circumstances. So the the Federal mm-hmm. Circuit has sat in panels of five a few times, but it's very irregular. In my recollection of the internal operating procedure there is doesn't really speak to this issue it's funny because if, right. if you adjust the if, if you adjust the kind of by, by statute or by constitution what should land on the supreme court's docket that would kind of create incentives within the supreme court to reach a reasonable panel system so i have in mind something like another thing i might change is to make circuit court decisions binding on the states uh that are part of the circuit you know this is this weird thing, right, right. Where, the, where the state Supreme Court and the circuit court could disagree. Was it Steve Laddick we talked about that with at length, or was it Michael Dorff? I can't remember. I think, now. It, I think was, it was Steve. I think it was Michael Dorff. Oh, it was. Or, okay. or maybe it was Steve, but it was around the time we talked to Michael Dorff, because I wrote this blog post about it as well, and they wrote blog posts, and so there was a kind of a back and forth about it. So again, them. your idea is just that a state Supreme Court should be bound by the uh, holdings on federal law of the circuits in which they sit. If they would be bound by a Supreme Court decision on the same issue. Okay. Right? I mean, obviously not on, on state law. And, of course. But, right. but if you did this, what you might want to create is the ability for a state or the federal court to certify this question of the Supreme Court and to make that non-discretionary. So in other words, there mm-hmm. are certain issues that would be like any time a state a federal court strikes down a state statute, maybe there should be a non-discretionary, a non-discretionary appeal uh, or, a non- yeah. or a non-discretionary um, hearing in the Supreme Court. I mean, the Supreme Court wouldn't have discretion to decide whether to hear the case, right? And right, exactly. that would work well yeah. if you had a panel system because there would be no right to an in-bank but there would be a right mm-hmm. to at least a panel of the Supreme Court. And you can think of other issues that are like that where um, maybe any circuit split. The question is who would decide when there's a circuit split or not. There's often, uh, let's say, mild disagreement about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you could um, maybe the federal – if a federal court certifies, mm-hmm. you know, that that, yep. it, that it has uh, not followed another it, – it would make the court decide whether it is following – other circuits or it's departing from the rule. So in other words, every yeah. circuit court who decides an issue anew would be doing it for the first time. And if mm-hmm. another circuit court is facing the same issue, it would say for it would have to decide for itself, am I following a sister circuit or am I departing? And if it's departing, it would then maybe certify yeah. this or something like that. And the Supreme Court could hear it in a panel and a decision of a panel of the Supreme Court is not necessarily binding on the Supreme Court. There would be an interesting precedent like you know how the circuit yeah. courts are, right? I mean, yeah. And so unless they embank it, they could revisit it later. So you, that would still preserve, which is, I think, one of the benefits of the of the cert system, right, which is that the Supreme Court can kind of let things cook for a while and let right. a bunch of circuit courts generate a bunch of information. They could do the same thing with their panel system. I just don't see why Congress, why you're so hesitant to allow Congress to have a, 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 a role uh, and maybe even a significant role at, at certain key formative 
Have you Period. Met, have you met Congress? <laughs> but the, there's already. Have I mean, you met? The, have you met the Supreme Court? <laughs> right. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. You know, there's Fair the, 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 the there's already uh, uh, the U.S. Code already has plenty of provisions in Title Twenty Eight and elsewhere, cre- do, managing all sorts of judicial business, and it just seems to me that. Um, mm-hmm. without engaging in the worst form of specious greater includes the lesser arguments, the exceptions clause does cut a pretty big uh, swath through a lot of these things, it, it seems to me. Wait, but if and, you put all this up for grabs, then the question is, like, it, it, again, like, I, and my, I, I haven't thought this through uh, deeply enough, obviously, but um, w- what kinds of questions do you want another branch of government to settle for the Supreme Court's own operations, and what do you want to leave for the Supreme Court to work out for itself based on information yeah. it generates internally that maybe it will have best access to it. And it seems to me like the size of panels and its and its precise procedures from going from a panel to in-bank, like maybe that's what you want to leave so, to the court. So let me ask you this then, Ian and, and, and sure. Christian as well. But, but okay, so let's take as an example um, what the court has done with, with recording AV of oral arguments and making that available mm-hmm. to the public. As, as an example, where Congress has been urging them to take that step for a long time. Nominees have been seemingly open to the idea before they were confirmed. It never actually happens. Uh, So Mm -hmm. there's an example where we're letting them decide sort of over time and based on their experience. And like, do you think that's, is that a story of a success for that method? Or is it a story of failure for that method? Or what are your thoughts, Ian, on that specific issue? Uh, On that specific thing, I think that that is the kind of thing I would not want to leave just to the, you know, aristocracy administering the federal courts. I understand that they have their reasons. Those reasons, for all I know, are even correct. However, you know, and and sort of one thing that I'm really thinking about as I kind of like develop like the next article that I'm writing is these courts are supposed to be built to operate for our benefit, right? Like they're a part of our government and they should work the way we want them to work. Um, even if the members of them, uh, for their own reasons, would prefer them to work differently or even are very firmly convicted that it would be better for all of us that they worked differently, that's just – it's very hard to ground that out in any kind of like theory of democratic or popular legitimacy. And so, look, if the people want to watch the Supreme Court, I think they should get to watch the Supreme Court, right? And even if they want to watch for foolish reasons – I think they should get to watch for foolish reasons. Now, there are, you know, there are limits to that. So I think, you know, the size of panels, things like that, how long in an oral argument in each case, yada, yada. You know, you might delegate that the way you delegate to an executive agency. But, in, you know, in, in the end, these institutions are ours and they're, they, they should work the way we want them to work. They're, it's not a priesthood. Right. Or it shouldn't be. So that's that's my basic view. So if we were to if Congress were to pass a statute that said, you know, they have to record the arguments uh, by audiovisual means and broadcast them within seven days. And here's the budget for that. And here's the, you know, uh, you know, the court's choice, I suppose, could be to say that that statute is itself unconstitutional as an interference with the their exercise of the judicial power of the United States. Mm -hmm. I I think that would be a horrible mistake on the court's part. I think that that would be a big mistake. And and also, by the way, if Congress were serious about this, the one thing I know the Supreme Court needs is they do need money, right? (laughs) 
they raise some of their own money from bar admission fees. They run their own cafeteria. It's why they're able to have a Christmas party every year with a giant Christmas tree, like not a holiday party. They sing actual Christmas carols, but they don't pay for it with any of their appropriated funds. So you'd be amazed how hard it is to challenge that, uh, mm. even under liberal rules of taxpayer standing. It's like the way um, university buys alcohol, right? See, I would, it, we don't exa- use the state funds. We use these other funds. <laughs> exactly. We use these other funds. But but like the salaries of the justices and their law clerks and of the you know hundreds of police officers around that place, they, they don't sell enough sandwiches in the cafeteria to pay for that. And so if Congress says, listen, you know, you're going to broadcast these things or you're going to find yourself. Um, look, you have your you have your life tenure and maybe you can even sue in the court of federal claims for your salary for yourselves. Although I don't remember anything in Article three about life uh, tenure salaries for your law clerks. And it seems like you rely on them quite a bit. Uh, you will broadcast this or you will find yourself with money for little else. Of course, they have to buckle under. Right. Of course, they would. And the question is, just does Congress care enough? Well, what, what about a general law? So it seems to me that laws which specifically target Supreme Court operations always get me a little bit antsy um, for the reason some of the reasons we've already mentioned. Right. That that I just can't think mm-hmm. of many situations where it wasn't in response to some kind of evulsive social change that Congress wanted to weigh in on and where the court is operating as the court. And so it's kind of the kind of majoritarian versus elite thing, which is occasionally worked out in favor of the vulnerable, right? Which I, I think is a good thing. And, Briefly and so from time to time. Yeah. And so, yeah and so occasionally. I, I'm, not always, but I, so anyway, I worry about this. Um, um, at least in those situations where you, Congress always wants to weigh in, it's almost always in situations where the court is actually working like you think a counter-majoritarian institution set up for these purposes maybe ought to work. But setting that aside, you can imagine laws that maybe would set up like, um, I don't know, audio.fed.gov, and a general mm-hmm. law which says that any federal government hearing in public must post audio live here and uh, mm-hmm. in, in the archive here. And that would apply to all of the federal government, including the courts. Yes. And, yeah. you know, I, and that wouldn't wouldn't bother me as much. And then, you know, and, and then, of course, there the, you know, the real deliberation which occurs, and I'm not sure you you know because you were a clerk. I think this is like right after I've heard. You know the one where Breyer had to open the door for so long, and whoever has to open yeah, the door. Yeah, now. yeah. Is that right yeah. after the oral arguments, or is that when is it's 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 not it's right Fridays. after. It, it's a distinctively good feature about the Supreme Court that it is not right after the arguments. So mm-hmm. that's exactly right. It's on. It's usually on Fridays. They have a mini conference earlier in the week. I think maybe to like talk about the Monday cases mm-hmm. uh, sometimes and, and handle some things. But actually, they have a few days after the argument because that is when Justice Scalia would talk to us in the most depth about the cases because he was like, okay, I've heard the oral argument. I've read the briefs, yada, yada, yada. I've heard everything there is to hear. You know, what's the right answer in this case? And they can really think it through. I think actually more courts of appeals should work that way because in the courts of appeals, they will go like right after the argument, not not even just same day. Yeah. They will go, you know, basically back into the room and then they'll vote. Um, and I was talking to, I can't remember who it was, but like some, uh, one of the new judges in the DC circuit who was who said something along the lines of, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to us experimenting with a more Supreme Court-like system so we could actually think about it after the argument uh, because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of path dependency. And, you know, you vote and there's an assignment and somebody gets writing and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, things can change. I mean, they, they continue to communicate after that initial conference meeting right after the oral argument. But but you're right. I mean, there is like once you're committed, you know, you know, human psychology being what it is. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But that that uh, what I've heard is that that meeting of the Supreme Court is 
you know, really substantively in-depth and interesting. And I think I've heard at least some justices say that the American people would be proud if they could hear the kinds of arguments that we have in this meeting, right? Mm-hmm. This is really like, the you know, if the oral argument is the justices talking to each other through the lawyers in a kind of like coded and interesting way, then like, you know, it's like, that's not where you hear the justices actually talking about what they really think, at least Directly. Totally. Yeah, I mean, totally. yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, and we, but, we always really we, the, the one document we always really prized as law clerks was uh, Justice Scalia would um, give us access to his notes of conference. Hmm. Um, so and he would kind of take because it's just the nine of them in there. Right. Which, you know, the no assistance, no, no, nothing. It's just the nine of them. And so he would take notes on the proceedings of conference so that, you know, we were able to, you know, accurately, you know, help him along or do whatever he needed us to do. We really prized those notes because they were there. Those are the justices really expressing their real views to each other. And and it's, you know, it's it's pretty rich. Yeah. But I, I raise this because, of course, you know, they, they would have, in my mind, a much better argument that that should not be broadcast, that there's something about totally. that, the secrecy in that room. Sure. You know, it's the same thing. It's like executive privilege, right? right. When, when you actually think executive privilege actually <laughs> does something worthy. And, and right? I, for one, am, am quite sympathetic to that argument, that that is that, that to that the, the importance of that conversation and that ability to deliberate together, uh, much like a jury's deliberation in a in a in a trial case, they, they really need to be able to have a conversation with one another without the intrusion of something being made available to the public in short order. Right. But that just shows, I mean, so that's the camel's nose under the tent. That just shows that that the more widespread or more publicity something has, it changes the thing, right? The thing changes the yeah, more but publicity no one's, it has. I'm not denying that. And no one, I think, who favors, uh, t- uh, t- you know, uh, televising uh, court arguments is, is, is making the argument that uh, that it wouldn't change anything. Yeah. Uh, people acknowledge that it would change things. I, you know, I think the primary difficulty now is maintaining this uh, practice where, you know, if you live in D.C. or you're a member of the court's bar or you can stand in this line. Uh, so if you yeah, have or, or, or you can pay or you can pay someone to do so. Right. Making most, it even worse. The most odious practice, I right. think. This yeah. Is, this and, is where this is where our conversation with Ian or our conversation with Dave Fagundis a long time ago, like they meet up. Right. Lines. Yeah. Yes, and true, yeah, yeah. And, and and it's and, but but that the the paying to be in line is is just a variation on the theme because all of it is is ultimately, in that sense, about class and and elite. Uh, an elite that gets to attend arguments live, yeah, it's garbage, and in real time, and it's just gross. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. and although audio uh, released on Fridays and then you know made available to things like Oye.org and and so it's on a podcast feed, that's all good, and I listen to every argument now mm. and I enjoy it. But gosh, uh, you know, it, we could have in the way we do with lots of other courts and the way we do with lots of other public proceedings. People can that day, if they want to, see what's happening in real time. And uh, yeah. and there are a bunch of people in that room watching, right, I, who I, aren't I, members yeah. of the court, aren't don't work at the court. don't. And so if they can be there, yeah. what the hell? I suspect that, I don't know, maybe the two of you will agree with this. Like, I don't care anything about video. Like, maybe some people think video is important, but if there's an argument that the justices will be self-conscious and it will change things, like, I could maybe buy that argument a little bit more with video. Um, yeah. The argument for... N- Delaying the audio until Friday and not live streaming the audio and having the audio immediate, available immediately after, you know, on a feed. Uh, that, I, I think, the, you know, at least I'm, I yeah, suspect I, the two of you I, are I very skeptical that. that that would change anything. Like if it were live streamed, that right. would change how, anything. Uh, right. How, how could it? Of how course, could it? Yeah. 
So yeah, right, and and all it, all it does is you know. So Dan and I run. You know, we we have a weekly Supreme Court podcast, and the problem is we record on Fridays just before the audio comes out. <laughs> and so very frequently we're having to like select excerpts from the argument to play for look, you know, interested people. These are people who are interested in the business of the court in good faith. They want to hear like what are the I don't have time because I'm maybe I'm not a law professor. I don't have time to listen to every single argument, but I'd like to hear you know, certain stuff. I'd like to keep up on this institution. Uh, but we have to make those selections without being able to actually hear them. And it is hard to see how the court's mission in any sense is advanced by making us wait that way. Do you, right? kn- do you know, have they, have you, what is the argument for delaying till Friday? What they do is they release the audio after conference. Um, I guess based on some theory that I can only speculate about that once they've conferenced and the votes are in, you know, they're, you know, in a sense, the cake is baked, and now we can let Hoy Polloi listen to uh, <laughs> the, the the lawyers actually speaking to the justices, even That's... though we've already released the. Con- it doesn't make any sense, especially well, because they often release same day audio if the case is important enough. In the, which, yeah. if you were really worried, those would be the cases you'd least want to come out the same day. But and also, they certainly right, do same day transcripts. Yeah. So yeah. if you got the transcript released, and and I, so I can read it, but I can't listen to it. Uh, because it's, reading it, the, you know, the cake is no somehow sense. not baked enough yet. I mean, it just makes no I sense. I don't know. It, it doesn't make any sense. And the courts who have – look, there are many, many courts in the United States. And one of the nice things is we have a very federated system. Yeah. And so, you know, like, look, I remember the first time I argued in the Ninth Circuit when they were doing live YouTube streaming. <laughs> YouTube, for God's sake, mm-hmm. okay? C- can you imagine a, a greater threat to the republic than that? Um, and yeah. they, they sort of yeah, putting them on the, Twitch with Twitch comments. Put, put, well, I wish. I, I, look, <laughs> I think it would be awesome. I, could have, I love Twitch. If I could have gotten some Twitch subs <laughs> yeah. uh, based on a based on a uh, you know Ninth Circuit argument, then maybe I could finally be making some real money. Yeah. But um, uh, uh, you know, they told me that, and I, I forgot about it in about two minutes. The sky has not fallen in the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, and they have live video streaming on YouTube of everything. So we have experience with this. We don't have to just guess about whether things would be different. We know that the answer is that they're not. I mean, they're going to be a little different, maybe. But, man, anybody who's argued a case in any court will tell you, you do not have time to think about showboating. You're just right. – it's hard enough trying to win, okay? And you're really very nervous trying to just do that much. So I don't know. So I think the lesson of all this uh, video and audio as an example of letting the court decide – is a significant thing you have to factor in to figuring out how you're going to allocate decision-making about new policies and new procedures is you can mm-hmm. expect the court to act in the most risk-averse, self-protective fashion imaginable. And so mm-hmm. if for, on any given issue, if you're comfortable with that being on the menu of possibilities, then by all means, leave it to them. Uh, because yeah. what you'll get from them is a few years or decades of... I know a lot of you people are saying this, and I know even when I was saying it at my confirmation hearing, I was much more open to the idea. But having arrived, yakety blah, no, um, <laughs> like that's going to be what you're going to get. And so, you, yeah. if you want that, fine. If you don't want that, you have to figure it out some other way, because that's what they seem well calculated to provide. I bet having 18 justices would change it. I mean, well, I, I, I bet. I mean, I, I think why stop at 18. I, I think when you when you join <laughs> when you join the Supreme Court. And you become one of the nine. It probably 
you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're joining a new community. Of course. Right? And, and, a, and a very small community. I didn't say it was blameworthy that you get the most oh, no. risk-averse right. decisions no, from that. I, I just, just th- think that is what you get. But I'm just thinking because, you know, a lot of courts haven't made the same risk-averse decisions with respect to, and what's different about those courts, right? And um, and maybe you could look at the, the in-bank practices of different circuits, like some of them in-bank mm-hmm. regularly, some of them don't. What's right. going on? What's the... Does it have to do with the yeah, history I, of the always, court, the culture? I've always found that super fascinating, that, like, the Second Circuit basically treats it as, like, once in a blue moon. The Ninth Circuit does it to correct error, right? right. It is very different, and there is no necessary reason that either one is, is correct. I've always done the, found that fascinating. So I think, you know, you scoffed at me when I, when I said we weren't going to get to the case that we— that <laughs> We're going to get to it. We're going to get to it now. Oh, we are? Okay, wow. Yeah. All right. We're only—this is—we're only 50 minutes We have five or, or six like hours that. left to yeah. get to that Yeah, case. this is Easily. nothing. Easily. It's nothing. Easily. That's— <laughs> That's the other thing about it. I remember early on in our show, we had some colleagues who would, who would listen, who were like, you know, you really need to like always hit an hour or something like that because they were really into this. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, they were not no. really podcast listeners at that point. But now I think everybody's mm-hmm. a podcast listener. Every, everyone, everyone has a podcast in addition to sure. being a podcast listener these <laughs> days, right? And so they know yeah, that, these, you know, these it's These mics are basically long, free. It's yeah. however long it lasts. There you go. That, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, I tried very hard. So our producer um, – on our show because you, you you produce this show yourself in the sense of like editing it together right well we, we I've, I've fired our producer a long time ago yeah that makes <laughs> that, that makes sense and so um i wish i could no i uh, yeah, I, produce, it, yeah. I, I do produce the show yeah yeah and so i neither dan nor i have enough uh skill to do that uh i tried to do it in the early days but when we so we eventually hired uh our producer melody rowell she is very much in this like comes out of the public radio tradition mm, and mm-hmm. so she's like we really should be hitting an hour, like don't make these things too long. And I'm like, I've been listening to podcasts since th- there were third-party pod catchers that would download it to your actual iPod. Right. And those podcasts were about three hours long, mm. and I thought they were pretty good. So um, it is a constant back and forth that like this is not going to be broadcast on radio. So it's as long as it is, and people listen for as long as they want. And I don't expect everybody to get to the end. And who knows, because some people listen at 1x, some 1.25, some 1.5. I know people, our listeners love it when we get into speeds. Oh, yeah. They oh, love yeah. it. This is a, you know, it used to, in the early days of our podcast, perennial. they were just waiting for the moment where we would ask the guest whether they flash their lights to warn oncoming drivers of, <laughs> of the presence of police officers. Yeah, so that, that's a deep cut. This, that's a oh, deep cut. Oh, this, is, this is, in the early days, we went through this a lot. And we, and, like and, and we found an article on Kant and flashing lights, I think, or we found some... We went, you did, I didn't. <laughs> um, so it, it is a deep moral issue. Um, every, the, every time, these days we just talk about podcast speeds. Yeah, every time uh, Dan and I do a live show... Uh, it, it's like I can set my watch by it. Somebody will come up at the end of the show and say some version of, I usually listen to you guys on 2X, so it was weird to hear you speaking <laughs> at your normal slow speed. And I'm like, well, thank you very much for that. <laughs> thanks thanks for letting me know. I'm, I'm sorry that this was such a, an imposition on your time. Yeah, um, it is true, Ian. I listen to you guys at 2X, and, and boy, boy, you sound a lot dumber right now. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just don't have the speed. I'm, right. Not enough mustard on the fastball right, right now. Exactly. Oh, I can't listen to my own show at 2X. I mean, at 1X. I don't know how anybody does it. But but I, what was the point here? And I don't listen to anything at 2X. But the, the point is that because people listen at different speeds and they'll like pause it, they'll listen at different times, like who knows how long anything lasts for any individual who listener. Knows? Yeah, there is no canonical time. Right. Um, no. What we can no. say for do, sure do, do is that got... this discussion has lengthened this episode, though. <laughs> it has. It has. Have you guys looked at all at the um, – so Apple Podcasts now has some kind of analytics that will actually tell you – how long people are listening in their podcast client? Yeah, really? I, I have seen that. And, 
I try not to look at it though. I, I, don't, I, I don't want to. I've only looked at it once because I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I don't. In my mind, everybody listens to everything. Exactly. I don't. I don't need to be corrected on that. And and our show actually is one where where I can't count the number of times because I do listen to it. And part of the reason I can listen to all of our shows back is because I do listen faster um, after editing mm-hmm. them, especially. But um, I think some of our best stuff is usually toward the end of our show. Like uh. we've kind of chewed on it for a while. Right. And so mm-hmm. if I open mm-hmm. that thing up and I find out that maybe seventy percent of the people make it three quarters of the way through the show, it's like. That's like almost you know, a yeah. Huge they like they miss the best. They're, they're missing the best part, and it's like yeah. missing the best stuff. Yeah, maybe maybe I need to make a podcast app that starts it halfway through. That sounds pretty good, right? I mean, <laughs> an option like, for like you know just you know I don't know. Just yeah, an the, idea. The, the real deep cut. You, you you could call it deep cuts. Or um, going back to the beginning of, of 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 our conversation today. You know, in the future, when you've got these uh, earbuds in your ear all the time, and they're so mm-hmm. small that it's like you know it's indistinguishable from some kind of weird earring in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, You'll just say, you know, play me the best part of this podcast. It's true. It's or you could say, Although, Siri, what do these jokers talk about this time? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Just summarize the podcast. Like you get like these services that summarize books so you can like, you know, be like an executive or whatever. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you who, does, who is not going to use that feature is my co-host Dan Epps does not listen to any podcasts, including ours. Wow, I'm not. I'm not sure he's listened to a single full episode of our show. Wow, um, it's just he's an, he's more of an audiobook guy. Um, he doesn't listen to other podcasts. He's like, look, I think it's fine what we do, but I have personally have no interest. And I'm like, well, thank you very much. <laughs> so is, I want to. This, this, this is John Roderick too, who I mentioned last time. Is like my favorite mm-hmm. podcast these days. Is, is Road, Rod- Roderick Road on the line? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, actually, Roadwork. I like. I, they're both great. I listen to John Roderick whenever I can. But um, but his with Dan Benjamin. I think I mentioned it was two weeks ago now. It's such a great podcast. But anyway, he doesn't listen to any podcasts. Oh. So he does these things. You know, he puts things out in the world. Like he's he feels like he's mm-hmm. helping people. It, people seem sure. to enjoy it, but like it's not for him. So here's the thing: we got to get, got to integrate a navigation traffic uh, software type situation where you're aggregating. So, so what we need is a way to aggregate the data about what portions of the show people listened to. Especially mm-hmm. like if you could know, well, here are portions of the show where people actually slowed it down mm-hmm. or listened mm-hmm. more than once, right? Mm-hmm. And get and aggregate all that so that you could ask it to play for you the things that people listen to the most frequently or intently mm-hmm. as like mm-hmm. the like the golden nuggets of the show. The one thing we don't that have would be amazing. The one thing we don't have enough of in our society is the mining and exploitation of personal data. I agree. Right. Like we gotta yeah, get been all very that little in there. of that, sadly. <laughs> Right, um, right. If only, if only we could somehow, for marketing purposes, uh, yeah, we exploit the power the of mathematics of and data to. It's yeah, true, yeah. and and you know, um, uh, you mentioned Overcast earlier. Marco Arment has written about his decision not to implement an auto ad skip feature in Overcast based on that kind of crowdsourced data. Because the one time I did look at our sort of Apple Podcast stats. Um, I saw little dips where we did the the ad reads, which we have some time, which yeah. is, of course, exactly what I do, too. Um, and But he said, you know, basically, if I release this and it becomes a normal thing, that could kill podcast advertising, which could, for people who are, you know, not law professors um, and can't just sort of do this as, you know, an interesting project, that could kill a lot of podcasts. And so it was like this decision basically to deliberately continue to deceive advertisers uh, <laughs> that their ads are actually being listened to when when everybody who actually listens to podcasts knows that they're not. Um, and and so that's kind of like the dark version of like play me the good stuff. It would be don't play me the like 
ads for Helix Sleep. Right. Well, it's, so it's interesting because with with the podcasts I listen to that have that that do ads, I always hit the thirty second skip button at least after they kind of start and I hear it, but. I could tell you the sponsors for every one of these shows. Yeah, it's not like it stops you from knowing the sponsors. And ATP actually mm-hmm. has, uh, you know, um, Excel Tech, Podcast. Tech Podcast has, they have chapters in it because apparently the Germans love chapters. That's what they say. Oh, yeah, they, they would get lots yeah. of feedback from from Germans, almost exclusively demanding chapters. <laughs> and Marco built this thing. He built this app which puts in chapters yeah. really easily. And so they have a chapters. But if you click the next topic, skipping the ad, you will hear that last little bit, you know, with that little, like that little music stinger mm-hmm. they have. And they'll say, Thanks to so and so for sponsoring our show. So you at least know who the person was, and usually that's enough. Like, oh, it's away luggage this time, right? Or, yeah. oh, or it's you know Arrow, or you know one of these things. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly little right. cues. Should we talk about Carpenter? I'm glad that they learned the lesson of world history and were responsive to German demands. <laughs> Why? <laughs> too I, soon? The, too <laughs> soon? The Germans are the only force for good left in the world these days. Well, that's much. why I'm saying yeah. I, it wasn't meant as a slam. I just think the you, oh, the overall contour of world history suggests some there there can be benefits to adhere to answering yeah. German demands. You, uh, you, you listen? Are you listening, Southern Europe? Uh, are you listening? Yeah. <laughs> the EU is it, the, you know it's funny uh, they're Brexit. Done. They're done. Brexit, uh, which it looks like it's going to be a crash out, a hard crash out. Yeah, hard Brexit. Yeah, the EU itself is set to, I think, not not too long after that, really begin to unravel. Oh yeah, they're 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 done. I mean, as a as an institution, like, I, I love the concept of like a, a pan continental government, but the actual administration of the EU as a sort of like um, uh, administrative force for like neoliberalism doesn't appear to have been that popular. <laughs> I thought we're we're gonna have to probably start over on this one because nobody. Other than the other than the German bankers, nobody likes it. So, well, too bad. I, I'm totally sympathetic to the um, to the arguments about income equality, and but but I'm also, um, you know, I think this is. A, I, I hate to see the Russians win this one. Yeah, <laughs> basically, sure. And, um, and 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 our own experience suggests that it takes a few drafts and maybe even a war to get the Constitution right, mm-hmm. right. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's like. The mix of of territorial sovereignty and the areas of regulation and the way that they choose both their agenda and topics, like yeah, you're gonna have to get that right over time. But maybe the solution is not creating a bunch, destroying the European Union and creating a bunch of small states that can well, then, I said you know, unravel. To a, yeah. So it's uh, I don't know that it's gonna happen, uh, you know, super quickly. But um, and and NATO uh, can continue to exist. Uh, even if the EU doesn't. Oh, they're although, working on that one too. Yeah. For now. Oh, I for know, now. I know. Yeah, I was going to say, for now. Um, yeah, it's it's true that, like, I would love to see what would happen. Like, I would love to see a left vision for the EU that said, like, look, like, we, I hear you, right? It doesn't actually seem like this as constituted is making a lot of sense, but here's a vision for pan-Europeanism that would make sense, that would actually be good, that would be democratically responsible, um, that would be like not just sort of administered by financiers, yada, yada, like this is what this would look like. And we don't want to leave the EU. We want to infect the EU with, with this vision and make it work differently. I would love to see that, but yep. um, I'm not a European. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm tempted to weigh in with my vast knowledge of European affairs and <laughs> economics. Uh, there's sure. some things that I do want to say, but as you, I, I, as do, you I do have to, to admit do. that they are, they are, they are uninformed things. Mm. So I, I, we probably should talk about Carpenter. Another, okay. another thing about which I'm probably underinformed, if not uninformed, 
Well, we'll we'll see what we can do about that. This is a this is a roundup of the Supreme Court's term. This is our annual. Yep. We do it every year, um, mm-hmm. and just, just to give because people don't have time to listen to First Mondays. Yeah, and there's they, a lot they, of those people. They they just want to like tell me everything I need to know about the last term of the Supreme Court. Well, Break we're, we're going to do that right now, and we're going to talk yeah. about uh, Carpenter in detail. I don't want to listen to 32 episodes. You guys are you know, you're yapping on, yada, yada, <laughs> right. slight lean this way, slight lean that way. Boring. <laughs> right. Give me one episode a year. Right. One episode a year <laughs> where we cover one case. And, and we're not even promising this is the most important case of the year. No. Um, we're not promising that it's representative. Mm. But it is, it, a is case, a, it is a case that happened. It is a thing that happened in the Supreme Court. It's a real case. Do we want – how do we want to – I have a lot of thoughts about this case. So, oh, okay. we, so we the the episode that we're going to release we recorded on Friday, um, yeah. And we did it was we basically we did some pre roll which lasted for about an hour, and so we, <laughs> yeah. people do know what we're going to talk about because we talked. This is the cell this is the um, cell location privacy case, right? So this is when you yeah. cell site location information when yeah. you're on the when when yeah. you use your cell phone it tri- the towers uh, triangulate they figure out where you are. This is you're, a, you've already made a mistake what? Uh, when your cell phone is on. What um, did I say? Yeah. You said when you're using your phone. Um, yes, and, this, and is, this is the thing Oren Kerr says all the time, and it drives me insane. It is when your cell phone is on. Yeah. It is in contact with your cell phone, phone tower. So it's not just when you're making calls, Oren. See, maybe – yes, that's true. <laughs> I, guess what, I guess what I'm saying is that I'm always using my phone. Like if the (laughs) – Well, we talked earlier about how much you love making phone calls. So you're basically on the phone all day. Well, not – but – You're texting. Yeah. Or you're – Yeah. I mean you're always connected to the the LTE. Looking at the Twitter. You're connected to the LTE. Yeah. So I leave those good reviews of First Mondays. I mean it's just – it's all day. I I (laughs) make no distinction. Even, Even when my phone is in my pocket, I feel like I'm using it. Because yeah. it's it's, I, it's ready and able to serve me with the notifications of important events. Mm, it's wow. it's streaming, you know, Ariana Grande or whatever you prefer to listen to. All that mm. stuff. Not that one, but you know. Although I, sure. I, I, I'm not, that's not a slam. I so, don't know. So for each person who's got one of these devices, what yes. that means is um, that for every day, it probably has a few hundred bits of information about your location at those times uh, when mm-hmm. those hundreds of bits of information were, were, were gathered, right? right. Yeah. Which, yeah. if you line them all up, can tell you a story about, for that day, where that where that person was that day, or at least where their phone totally. was, and given how you, like most people, keep their phone pretty close to their person, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Knowing where the phone is tells you a lot about where the person likely was. And if you line up day after day, you've got thousands and thousands of points of information about where a person was over a course of days. That's a lot of information. Now, at the time, the phone companies need this information to connect you with the right tower to, to get to, the best write, service, right? right. But route, they also keep the this information, yeah. and they use it for their own business purposes, right? Either both to improve their service, like if they know where people are, they maybe they know where to build more towers, they know, you sure. know that sort of thing. Uh, but but mm-hmm. also uh, they will, uh, as everyone does these days, apparently they will take these data and they will sell them to other people um, right. for who are willing to pay to know, hey, where are people? If you have that question, if you have a business and you want to know where the people are, maybe you go and you make a deal with one of these, you know, fine, upstanding corporations, which um, is a modern cell phone company. Which I, mm-hmm. I, lo- I don't know about you, but I love dealing with my cell phone company. <laughs> you know, second only to the cable companies. I think I think we all love u- utility companies. Yeah. Um, they're, they're excellent, obviously. Yeah, exactly right. That's exactly right. So f- for people who listened to uh, – if you're listening to this podcast, you might like others. Uh, you remember in Serial, the way Adnan got convicted was yeah. in part based on cell phone location information, which is uh, quite reliable, which is one of the reasons I believe he did it. Um, this is exactly – like as soon as the government realized this – they started requesting this location information like the next day, and yeah. they've been getting it for ten years. 
And it, it also reminds me of that there was a great radio lab about this kind of total awareness um, concept. I, but there was a company that was using a satellite. I think it's a satellite. Was it a satellite? Now it's been so long since I've listened to this. You can tell what kind of deep preparation I do for this show. Of, yes, submarine um, or something. I do, I do have notes on the case. <laughs> I, should say. I, do have, I do have notes on the case, but they had something in the sky. I think it was like a satellite, drone. but it was it, maybe it was a drone. Now, that, because it was taking constant twenty-four hour a day pictures, and they were able to track individual vehicles, right? And so they could rewind mm-hmm. time, and they used mm-hmm. it. They, you can use it to solve murders or kidnappings, or other, but you can also use it to solve who's cheating on their spouse, that sort of thing, right? Mm. So, yep. it, it's this. Uh, uh, so part of it is, you know, uh, 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 part of the issue of this case is just what kind of privacy interest is location information? How wh- what is that? Is that like a paper where you write things what, on? Is yeah. It, yeah. What, what's going on? So that's one of the issues in this case. Another issue in this case is the difference between a subpoena and a search. And if there is mm-hmm. a difference and that's something that like. If you've never been to law school or even if you have been to law school, you might be confused about that. You might wonder what the difference is between those things. So we, we can get to that. And then there are um, – of course, there's also the difference uh, uh, between justices and, and members of society about whether you use the term cyber to refer to the internet. Mm, that sure. came out in this case in a big way. Yes. Yeah, c- cyber is uh, – the cyber age I think is over with the <laughs> retirement of Justice Kennedy in right. about uh, three days. Yes. So that's done. <laughs> um, where should uh, we start? When did it were so? So where should we start with this thing? I mean, I guess, you know, just just let's start by saying what the formal issue is. So in case people don't know Carpenter, because there was a lot going on in this term, like the question is, is the government's acquisition of like this kind of location information, historical location information, right? So not real time. The court's opinion weirdly holds that back in ways we can discuss. Mm-hmm. But historical location information, in this case, they used to like about 120 something days to solve a burglary, ironically, including of cell phone stores, um, to like, you know, figure out where the burglars had been. Is that a Fourth Amendment search or not? Right. And although you don't get the sense the court is all of one mind about this, the sort of headline is, yes, it is. And you do need a warrant supported by probable cause to get that stuff. Now, this is when you demand it from a cell phone company. So you're, you're going to a business yes. and you're asking for their records. For their business records. And, and yes. even if they would voluntarily hand them over, that's, you still mm-hmm. have to get a warrant because the right, as the court holds, the, or, or demonstrate that there's some exigency that would, or there's an exception would to a warrant requirement. For a right. warrant. And, and, and mm-hmm. that's true for every situation. Um, sure. Right. There, there can always be circumstances sure, sure. where, although a warrant would ordinarily be required, it's not required in this case, yes. comma, because, right? And right. so, so here it's like, I'm going to a business, I want their records. It's not enough that they are willing to turn them over. It's not enough that I – even that. But it's also not enough that I demand them and I could otherwise get their records, right? Because these mm-hmm. particular kinds of records are um, within the privacy rights of another individual. And because mm-hmm. I have to – and it, const- it would constitute a search of that individual to get these things from this third party. And this yeah. runs into a couple of different old um, uh, Fourth Amendment doctrines, including the so-called third party doctrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, which arose in some cases. Uh, one involved bank records where the, the – I forget if it was local cops or the feds, but um, government goes to a bank and wants records of a particular customer. Customer later in a, in a, uh, in a, a criminal trial – I'm pretty sure it was a criminal trial – says, you, you, know, the, the, you know, that was a search of my records even though I wasn't maintaining them. And the court says no. That, uh, right. the, the government was getting it from a third party. 
uh, and, and let's say it was checks and you wrote the checks right. and you gave them to the bank. And so you knew the mm-hmm. bank was going to be able to see the checks and process the checks right. and do things with that information. And, and so given that you gave it to a third party in that way, when the government comes along and says, well, we'd like to see it too, you could hardly claim that, oh my God, it was the most private and personal thing to me. Well, you gave it to someone else. So clearly right. it's not. Just a note about that. Just remember that that case arises in the 1970s. That's United States versus Miller, which I think is 1972-ish. The volume of financial transactions that a normal person engaged in with a bank in that era, 40 years ago plus at this point, um, was so much smaller than now, right? Like right now, if you gave somebody access to my financial transactions, um, I buy everything with a credit card, right? right? I love love the points. They're wonderful. But, (laughs) you know, back in the day, like when Miller was decided, it was, you know, maybe you deposit a paycheck, you withdraw some cash from time to time, you know, but like it doesn't paint a picture of your life. Right. Right. And so like Miller is often described uncritically as saying, well, there's no, you know, there's no privacy interest in your financial transactions. I think that's actually not correct. But like that, that's Miller. Right. So we, we start with that. And I think it'd be a fair question about, well, why did the government think that that means I can watch you everywhere you go? Well, and, and of course, Miller is is built upon or or, or is a, a, a channeling of the doctrine in Katz, where the court says that the, the text in the Constitution, the part of the Constitution which says that um, um, uh, that there shall be no unreasonable searches and seizures, and that gives what does it say places? Per, does it say persons and effects, or how does it phrase that? Uh, uh, persons. Papers, papers and effects or something? Persons um, are secure in their uh, – no, people should uh, be secure in their person's effects. And homes. <laughs> persons, homes, papers and effects, okay. I think. Okay. So clearly we are outing ourselves as strict textualists here. <laughs> yeah, clearly. I'm like supposed to be a crim pro scholar, but I think it's I think, I think think it's persons, homes, papers and effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean like it's, it's – this. You know, the Constitution is small. We should all know this, but, you know, I don't. I don't know. And anyway, so um, uh, there's this case, Cats, which holds that – what this really does is it, it – well, one thing that it does is it imposes on the government a requirement to get a warrant when it wants to uh, search, right? Um, uh, and a search involves any time it goes in – any time it violates a reasonable expectation of privacy in order to get something. Yeah. Um, now, what does that mean exactly? You should yeah. explain to the listeners because obviously they hear <laughs> that. They think instantly, well, what does that mean? There must be some kind of very legalistic explanation. Uh, you should explain what that means since, of course, we all we all know. <laughs> I, so uh, here's where I will just say I'm not a crim pro scholar. But even if I were, um, this is like – so much of law is is common sense uh, or or common sense disagreement dressed up in in rhetoric and channeled towards particular um, well, so with- towards particular principles. But but here's one right where we talk in a certain way. But what the court has been doing with reasonable expectation of privacy is trying to capture right. Um, uh, trying to capture those situations in which people would say, "Wait a minute, you sh- this is really invades something private." Yeah, to me, in some way, right. So, if you're cats and you're in the phone booth, which is which are, I think those are the facts of cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That you know, for, if you're cats and you say, "Well, wait a minute," if I had had this phone conversation in my apartment, uh, or or let's say I owned a home and I had it in my home, or I rented an apartment, had it in the apartment, or even if I were in a hotel room, I suppose we could make the facts that right. You would say, "Oh, to get to record that conversation, the actual content of the conversation over the telephone." Um, you would have had to have some sort of supervision from a judicial officer to, to be able to listen to my Someone else phone needs to pass on this. Yeah. yeah. It wouldn't just be by your say-so, the mm-hmm. FBI or the local police department. So why should it make a difference that I went 
and made the phone call at this phone booth that was near where I was at the time. Um, I closed the door to the phone booth. This is at um, listeners. There were these things called phone booths, and they, they had doors yeah, on them. You and use them to travel in time, as I understand matters. I knew that was going to be the you, reference. Yeah. You, you can close the door, and if someone had come into, like, if a person had walked up to you and tried to get into the phone booth with you while you were using the phone booth, we would all, like, everyone nearby seeing that would be like, what is that person doing? Doing. That's crazy. Or if you they can't put up some in. kind of earpiece, right? right or they the went up with a little and, glass yeah. and put it again. You know, we would all understand that this that the person who was uh, trying to get all up in your phone booth business at that point is violating, at, at the very least, social norms of mm-hmm. behavior and respecting your ability to have a private phone conversation, right? And, and and would arguably be guilty of some kind of tort, right? Like there would actually probably be some positive law remedy for that kind of eavesdropper. Right, which I think is, uh, as we'll talk about later, might actually be important to some of the justices that that's true. Mm. And so, given that Katz could make that argument um, about why, when he's using the phone booth, it, it shouldn't be that that people can just listen to it because he's not at his house, right? Like, well, why? You know, why is that? Well, why is it not okay in my house? Well, you can point to some constitutional language, and that ain't nothing. Um, but, but. When the court in Katz says, look, the, con- the privacy, the, these, these guarantees, the Fourth Amendment, it protects not just places, but persons. And right. persons can be in a variety of places. So if right. we, if we and, and of course, the constitutional text does refer to uh, people Seizures. being secure in their persons. So it does mention persons as well as places. Right. Right. So you can and you're rolling your eyes because no, every no, time I'm I not, mention the text of the Constitution, no, no, you want to roll your eyes <laughs> no, no, at me. I'm not rolling um, it. listeners. This happens not, every time. That's not um, that's but, absolutely false and <laughs> it's an incorrect interpretation of what just happened. OK, but go ahead. Um, Please proceed. Governor. OK, thank you. Uh, so when Katz says, hey, the fact that Katz has an interest in his own privacy is a thing. Like, not just that Katz's home is a place that is special under the Constitution, but Katz as a person has some interests that the Constitution uh, tells us we need to do something to protect, right? Um, th- they're, they're responding to the fact that Katz can point to being in the phone booth as being similar to being in his house. Of course, the government can point to Katz being in the phone booth as being quite different from being in his house. And that's how you get in the soup. And, and, and just to, to one little kind of um, like a, a little bit of a hitch is remember the, the court at the time of Katz had actually approved snooping even into people's houses as long as there was not a physical intrusion, right? I, I don't think that was Olmstead, but it was you know one of those kind of between Olmstead and Katz cases where mm-hmm. yeah. if you could if you could sort of tap the if you could tap the wires outside of their house, right? Then there was no physical intrusion, and that was not a Fourth Amendment event. And so Katz actually goes even a little bit further than what you were saying and says, actually, that was actually kind of wrong too, right? Like the people should have uh, an interest in their private conversations in their house, which. Previously, they did not. Um, and so, yeah, so Katz is even a, a tiny bit more radical than that. So there are kind of four ways to go here. Like, so what you could do with a case like this, which is involves records of your location kept by a third party. Like one thing you could do is say, yeah, Katz is right. That's the right analysis, whether the person had a reasonable expectation of privacy. And if they did have a reasonable expectation of privacy in these records, then the government has to get a warrant to get them unless there's some exception. And that warrant 
puts them to the task of arguing to a judge that there is what probable cause, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it takes, takes forty five minutes out of their day, and then they get it, and they get it anyway. But you have to demonstrate so. some kind of particularized suspicion of this person. It can't be a yes. just general, like you know, there, there was a crime, and this will help us solve the crime. It's, it's got to be like right, this it's, person, it's, right? Has yeah, right, exactly. Like when I was in law school, because I wrote my student note about this. Uh, a fact I never tire of reminding people, so I'll remind <laughs> uh, your listeners as well. Um, I was talking to friends of mine who had interned in for their you know two L summer job in the U.S. Attorney's Office in uh, Manhattan or Brooklyn, and they said, oh, yeah, we, like you to, to get those location records, you fill out a form, right? And there's not that many blanks, and you turn it in, and you get it, right? Like yeah. that, I, I know it doesn't seem like much probable cause isn't that big of a deal, but like they got them all the time for basically anybody they were interested in, and nobody cared. Yeah, the only reason to think that this is, would be a huge barrier to criminal investigation is the fact that the police are pushing, you know, that the, the government pushes back against the need to get a warrant in cases like this, right? But uh, yeah. but anyway, yeah. so whatever it is, like the question is, do you have to at least demonstrate some kind of individualized suspicion rising to a certain level, right? And we don't need to go into it necessarily more than that. So one thing you could do here is to say that, in fact, in this case, there is not a reasonable expectation of privacy because the person is already out in public. People can already see the, where they are. You can make all kinds of arguments about how no one should mm-hmm. have a reasonable exp- – that it's not a reasonable expectation to keep – location information private. A second thing you could do is to say that even if there is an expectation of privacy here generally, they have turned over these records to this company voluntarily, and we are getting those records from that company. That's the so-called third-party doctrine. Another Mm -hmm. thing you could do is to say that Katz got this thing wrong, right? Katz is just not right, and we Mm -hmm. should kind of go back to an old idea that what the Constitution does is in preventing unreasonable searches, right, is to require a warrant. And you might even go back further than that and say it never requires a warrant. But let's just assume we're going to stick with a warrant requirement and argue that um, that only searches of property. And it was really about, as Alito says in his, in his opinion, right, it was really about preventing means of government, government's means in getting information, right? The ransacking of a house, the looking through private spaces. It's, you know, so if it's your property, right, then there's an issue. Um, Another thing you could do, or then, then you need a warrant. A fourth thing that you could do is to say that while generally you might need uh, warrants uh, when there's um, uh, to search property, um, whether this was property or not, it doesn't really matter. This is an this is asking for information from a party uh, to be disclosed, mm-hmm. and that is a that falls in the category of subpoena rather than a search because it's not the government doing the search itself. Yes, and and uh, and there is no Fourth Amendment right to resist a subpoena. If there is any right at all to resist a subpoena, which is a request that you search your own stuff. And tell us what you find rather than we, the government, will go in and search your stuff, right? So if there's a subpoena, then the only constitution – well, there may be several, but one constitutional right you might have against a subpoena is the right against self-incrimination. But it is not a Fourth Amendment right against a search. No, I want to take your third one, which is Katz is wrong. Let's go back to a a much more property-focused conception. I think there are really two variations of that, I think. Alito-Gorsuch or the Kennedy-Gorsuch split. Yeah, that you can can either be – Fairly, um, and, and this and this rang very familiar to me in terms of the IP world, um, and there are some folks in the in IP context where they invoke property, and and it's property that's very. Um, uh, it's very primary colors property. It's got no nuance. <laughs> uh, it's it's very uh, sharpened and leveled, and has very few moving parts, and uh, it inevitably, interestingly, supports the person making the argument. Um, 
the, You're the, telling me tech tech people are reinventing complex topics and making them simple from first principles? <laughs> I, that that um, seems pretty unlikely. And, and the but the other version of property is very nuanced, very much about you know, there's hundreds of years of case law developing all sorts of property-like concepts. And so if we go the property route and we really wanted to be serious about it, we would need to ask lots and lots and lots of questions about various uh, Mm -hmm. property doctrines, how they interoperate, how they might cash out in a particular fact setting, where small factual differences could wind up making the difference between this being a, you know, a a case where you need to get a warrant and this not being a case where you need to get a warrant. This reminds me, Hmm? I was going to say this reminds me of, of of what was I think simultaneously both the one of the more interesting and most ridiculous things written by Ian's justice Justice Scalia the mm-hmm. Lucas case which the, is a ta- the, the Lucas case the, ah, the Lucas case yes. right which is which held that you know generally for to to determine whether a regulation constitutes a taking for which the uh, government must compensate a private landowner. Um, there's a there's a balancing test, a, a typical O'Connor style balancing test that that weighs several different features, and is just trying to figure out like what's reasonable in this situation. But given when the you eliminate 100 percent of their whatever, then so, then so Scalia comes in and Lucas and says, "Hey, if if you wipe out all value, to, you don't look at anything else, like whether there was a reasonable expectation of." But there's of this money. nuisance thing that they, right, right. if you're just doing that, yes, right? he says, if a state is just applying its its background principles of state law or nuisance law, right. right then there's no, there's not necessarily a, requ- a requirement to compensate. Maybe we would do mm-hmm. this Penn Central thing. And, and now, of course, you have to wonder just how big is the is the um, the U-Haul trailer you have just attached to your car well, when you right. say the background expect, you know, the background principles of the law of nuisance or whatever. Well, the right? law of nuisance, right, is is a substantial and unreasonable interference with someone's use of their property, <laughs> which is cashed out in a balancing test of the right. competing right. uses, exactly. right? Exactly. Right. And and, so, and, and so, so one of the things that I've tried to get people to like buy into with like very little success so far is like it would be very silly to reinvent all of the distinctions that are made by the law of property under like this kind of like these inevitably open-ended balancing tests right it would also be very silly to import the positive law of property i think wholesale to like the fourth amendment because that, that, like those rules are constructed to protect a certain set of interests uh, and yada yada, and they may not sort of necessarily cash out in the same way. But like the property vocabulary is very useful to talk about the Fourth Amendment, right? Like so, like the third party doctrine makes total sense if you've never heard of the concept of a bailment, right? Like if you've never checked your car or given your coat to a coat check or giving your cell phone to a bartender to charge behind the bar, the idea that like you would give something away to somebody else uh, and then that you would have no further interest in it might make perfect sense. But in the daily life of human beings, that's actually not true. And so we have like a word for this, right, that expresses that feature of daily life. And so I've been trying to get people to at least use the vocabulary even if they don't want to import the positive law, which I agree should not be done. So here's what I think, though. I think our intuitions about, like, for example, bailments, right, that, that um, uh, you retain an interest when you check your coat or when you when you give the valet your car. Like, you still own the thing, but that person has obligations, even though they are in control of the thing, right? That, that it, the similarity between that and, and a kind of reconstructed third-party doctrine or generally between reasonable expectations of privacy analyses and property analyses and nuisance law or something else is because is not because they are actually the same thing with different names, right? And it's like, oh, we can just recognize that really what's going on in 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 
Fourth Amendment law is, is property by another name. It's not that. It's that there are some uh, – they, they, they both follow from some more general understandings and are oftentimes in alignment. So in that sense, the similarity mm-hmm, is kind mm-hmm. of epiphenomenal, right? There's, they're, they're, they're both consequences of a more general phenomenon. But that phenomenon totally. is not like – it doesn't map on like isomorphically between the two things, right? I mean there's not uh, – they're, they're not the same thing, yes. right? But they proceed yes. from the same set of intuitions. A lot of the debates in property about like should I have a right to have a loud party – in my house or should my neighbor have a right to sleep right uh, next door mm-hmm. unimpeded you know, mm-hmm. and quiet like that's it's something like property scholars for a long time have known like you're not going to answer that by declaring who owns what right i mean that's not enough you have to talk about what what constitutes ownership right right i think that's exactly right and it involves some kind of balancing yeah and, and there is a uh, you know justice kagan wrote a characteristically excellent concurrence in this case from uh, maybe about five years ago, called Hardinez, which is about – like it's it's Justice Scalia in the majority writing a kind of property-based theory about why you can't have a drug-sniffing dog come up to the front uh, porch of your house and sniff around. And Kagan writes in concurrence, like, look, that makes perfect sense to me. But like it, it is also true that if we asked this under a sort of more privacy-oriented framework, we would get the same answer in part because our rules of property – are formed exactly as you just said from the same instincts that would make us form Fourth Amendment rules, right? That like this, they they proceed from the same thing, and so we could get to the same place from either one. And so I think that's totally right. That it's not that it's the same thing. It's just that you know property law, because it must deal with that all the time, has a rich vocabulary. But we should not. It's not that it's the same thing. It's not the same thing. It's just a very good set of words. And sometimes they diverge because property sometimes is concerned with incentivizing certain kinds of investments and behaviors and rewarding mm-hmm. – and so rewarding those behaviors through exclusion rights. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes those exclusion rights are stronger in order to encourage the behavior, not necessarily to adjudicate between present interests, right? You know, it's not like we have a, mm-hmm. a strong moral intuition about whether I should be able to have a loud party or you should be able to sleep. But maybe there are some prior instincts we mm-hmm. have about like how people acquire, you know, what incentives would uh, uh, should be to, for people to acquire property and, and to use it. But that's not that doesn't necessarily map on to are instincts about how uh, whether I should be able to resist uh, government intrusion into a thing like that's totally these, these yeah. are these are different questions and that's why I have scrawled I think it's in Alito's opinion um, somewhere like I scrawled this is this is another instance of the um, of of the imperial law of of ownership and property right and it's 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 mm. things not people mm-hmm. right and, and mm-hmm. but which really when you say things not people what you really mean is certain people not other people. Right. You mean mm-hmm. what I want to do is I want to reify existing power structures to make the Constitution sensitive to this other realm of, of power that this of private power that we are um, that, that we've established. Yeah. Through, through like a, 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 a constitution of, of capitalism and nothing else. Right. Is the way as a radical like me would say. It. Well, there's I think one way to describe that phenomenon as it's playing out in these different opinions is uh, and and the way that it struck me after reading it the second time was there's sort of two different braids there are competing braids and and these two different braids two of the three strands in both are the same and they are privacy and property uh, but the third braid is is what's different and for one group it's exit and for the other group it's personality or personhood and mm. the, and so the the fact that two of the 
strands in the braids are the same is is why they can be saying so many of the same things or or expressing so many variations on the same themes but but because the third one is different there's where the differences are coming from and i think hmm. that um i think that uh a, a sort of an overlay on top of these two different braids is the fact that Justice Gorsuch, for example, seems very invested in striking certain judicial poses about wanting to, uh, you know, call the Warren court whimsical and um, and hand waving <laughs> as much as possible. Whereas he wants to do. Yeah, he likes he that. likes to call the law. Yeah. And yeah, I knew um, you were going to whip out my the, trademark the bad Gorsuch, Gorsuch voice. I'll leave yeah. it a little thing called the Constitution. Right. Like snap like <laughs> suspenders back on yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Um, or in the, or in this case, law. Yeah, he does and, say uh, law. Yeah, does yeah say and, law. and and that means for him. These common law doctrines of bailment, which have all sorts of interesting nuances, and it's interesting in part because you could wind up getting to very much the same conclusion. And so, you know, he's showing that, and I think actually in a quite skillful way, shows that bailment mm-hmm. law has all sorts of plasticity and can develop in these interesting ways. And, you know, oh, no, you, you just because it's an unconsented thing doesn't mean it's not a bailment. And just because it's this doesn't mean it's not a bailment. And so, you look, I can do all these great... now. I step back and I ask myself, okay, well, if you're willing to do it for a thing you're calling bailment, why is it so awful when the chief and the four liberals do it for a thing called, you know, cats and and the third party doctrine as reinterpreted in this very case, right? And it's because they don't denounce the Warren court and you do. So, well, so here, here's the question for you. And I, I, I have my view on this, but I want to hear your view, both of your views. Do you think that he actually would have dissented if he were the necessary fifth vote in that case? So the chief, he's got the four libs, um, and so it's a it's a five four. It Justice Gorsuch's opinion notably does not say whether he would reverse the opinion, would uh, reverse the judgment below, which was in favor of the government, um, and he basically only is like criticizing the chief's opinion. He's not saying he gets to the wrong answer necessarily. Do you really think that he would have been the fifth vote for the uh, dissenting position, so to speak, in this case? Here's why he should. Um, because if it, if it really is the case that, and I don't know enough about all the underlying papers to know whether it's the case, but I'll take, uh, I'll take his description as accurate. If it's really the case that this very bailment-centric way of thinking about this case f- in, in a deep fashion, right? If that's really the right way to analyze this case, you really shouldn't be willing to do that if it hasn't been fully ventilated in that way, arguably even below, but certainly here. He right? rested on forfeiture, that that Carpenter forfeited yeah. the argument. Right, that this is worked. my point, right? Yeah. That, that you, if it hasn't been, you know, argued below and briefed here in this fashion, then if you really do mean what you say about the importance of hewing to the complexities and richness of these property, this property jurisprudence about bailment, then you really shouldn't be willing to overturn the lower court decision unless it's been demonstrated to you that that is actually the proper answer under this understanding of these property law concepts. So, so yeah, I think you shouldn't be the fifth vote to overturn the judgment below uh, in the absence of those kinds of papers that help demonstrate to you that it's the case. If, if I take him at his word, right, that he really believes yeah. that this is the way it should be done, then no, he shouldn't have been willing to vote 
uh, with the chief and the liberal justices, um, e- even if he, if his vote were necessary to to obtain that reversal. If you overturn a case like Katz, and uh, um, and which you say, does not happen in this case, uh, right, right. No, but that's if if he had gotten his way, and and. Um, and, and yeah, this the, is his the law where now I've got to go through pro- the property abatements and I have to right. I his think other way in, yeah. in, in kind of reform property, not not like old formalist property, but like, you know, real, real property <laughs> where you, you're doing these balancing things and you're basically replicating the expectation of privacy analysis through the language of property. Right. So <laughs> if you have to do that, then um, then he should what he should do is is send it back below for that analysis and not rest on forfeiture. You can't say they forfeited claims when. The claims they forfeited were based on like assuming that cats applied, right? Well, that's a yeah. good point. So you right you so your vote would be to vacate the judgment below, and to send it back for a proper analysis under all of these property right. uh, arguments uh, under these new theories. Given that yeah. you know we yeah. just eliminated cats, no one could have seen that coming, and so <laughs> it wouldn't or, be fair to hold them to to that approach uh, ex ante. Yeah, and and look, you know. By the way, they did raise this in their briefs. They didn't spend a lot of time on it, right? Like it was kind of a by the way. But the other thing you can ask for, like, and I feel like if it were necessary for the for the judgment, you'd probably get yes on this, is I think I'd like to reverse the judgment below, but I'd actually like to see briefing on this question. Could we have this case re-argued? Sure. Right? Sure. That's an available vote, and I think that that's perfectly reasonable. Um, but you know, I'm with you, and I sort of took his vote as a more kind of tactical, like, um, given that the side that I think should win anyway is going to win, mm. kind of vote. Um, I don't want in the future for you to neglect these kinds of arguments because I need help figuring this stuff out. And so this one is kind of costless. Like I'm dissenting from the chief's opinion. I. I'm not necessarily saying what I would do with the judgment below, but like next time, can you please put the property law stuff in? That's what it felt like to me. Yeah. And I think there's um, now that explains all the discussion of bailment. It does not explain um, the the sort of more ad hominem uh, trashing the Warren court decisions just because mm-hmm. they're Warren court decisions, which I was the less o- attuned the to the, sec- huh? the, the opening line of like some decisions back in the late 1960s. Right. <laughs> right. And, and it's funny because the first time I read his opinion in this case, that did not leap off the page at me in the way that, that it did the second time. Through. I made, a, the second I made time a notation through, the first time. <laughs> the second time through it really, it, it, cause it happens in three or four different it places does, yeah, where yeah. he's explicitly saying, well, you know, there's law and then there's, that hand, those hand waving wackadoos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or there's that that, um, a, and that stuff is just um, really strike strikes me is really just about taking a pose for a certain political tribe, and that worries me that there's that kind of that kind of stuff, which is it seems to me or, orthogonal to Ian your description of hey, this is a this is an easy way for me to say. It, my agenda would be to have people brief these issues in a slightly different way. So I'm going to make a very public statement about wanting that stuff. That's that seems perfectly OK to me. I mean, if you if you really yeah. do believe those things and you really would benefit from having people brief them more, why the hell not tell them about it? By all means, do so. But, you know, stop with the trash talking of everything that happened in the 60s. Yeah, I think what uh... – <laughs> A practice I would commend to not just Justice Gorsuch, but really all of the justices is because I think, I don't know, I have no basis for believing this, 
Although I think that your interpretation is a perfectly fair and probably actually the most fair interpretation of those comments, my gut tells me that that was actually not the intended meaning. And the, the problem is, is that there was no one in chambers who could have spotted that. And so what I would commend to Justice Gorsuch and all the justices is hire a counterclerk who can read that opinion and say, look, I think what you mean is something else, but this is going to read as like needless trash talking of the Warren court. I actually don't think that's your point here. Can we say this a different way? And then look, if he says it anyway, that's one thing. But I think there's a decent chance that like a little, a, a set of eyes that was not, that was like a little more steeped in a different political tradition would have actually improved that opinion. Uh, and it's, you know, a thing that, yeah. you know, my old boss, Justice Scalia did that, like, I think, I think it was much to his profit. And I would really recommend it to all of the justices, liberal and conservative. It's like, it's very useful to have somebody reading your stuff that's like on the other team, so to speak. I mean, there is a part of this opinion that signals a lot of nuance, right? And that's the nuanced new property thing, right? And then there's other, there are other parts that don't signal that nuance. And, and, and maybe you have to be immersed in a certain political culture to, to see the signal that way. I yeah, and, and I think having a counterclerk, I mean, I think that's a great idea. Um, I think not having contempt for the Warren court is an even better <laughs> idea and a separate idea. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and I think, you know, my problem, and this has a lot to do with the stuff that I've been, my own sort of research and, and writing in the last year or so is, is and, and the way that it's been changing my thinking about, uh, you know, c- common law systems as such, that, that really um, the... The whole overruling or not overruling prior cases, I think, is in a way it's a bit of a distraction uh, from the far more important point, which is about the the discourse having an integrity that people aren't constantly tearing at. Uh, And and for for the court's prior decisions, you know, overrule them, don't overrule them. In a sense, that's all fine uh, uh, at a certain level to me. Um, but the the constant tearing at your own flesh, um, like you're trying to rip out uh, some foreign object, is is what's destructive. Mm. Um, and and that it's that the the statements in in his opinion here that have that whiff to me, uh, and that tr- and that troubles me for that reason, right? Um, and so. Uh, and it and it's born ultimately of a kind of contempt, um, and I feel in a way that uh, Justice Thomas, uh, although his uh, he, he's so learned in so many of his opinions, exploring these very different perspectives on how to reason about certain legal issues, um, don't don't come across as trash talk at all. Um, but they do demonstrate a certain kind of contempt for the work of the court over a long period of time on a, on a large set of issues that I think is troubling. Um, and so the, this, uh, I would just recommend, yeah, okay, hire a counter clerk and be l- much less contemptuous of the people who used to have the job you have right now. I mean, yeah, this is a, a more general thought I have is that a kind, a, a certain kind of contempt for the past is useful. <laughs> contempt maybe is too strong a word, but a certain kind. I've, I've always thought like it, a culture should have a certain strain of disrespect for its own past. Mm, yeah, I just can't join that. I well, mean, uh, skepticism about it. Yeah. Um. A a you know, and and I've 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 suggested a certain amount of hubris is is good. But I brought like, I brought yeah, it up before. Yeah. I want to bring it up again because okay. it's a really big because it goes right to this point, right? Um. And my thinking about this has changed over time. But, but the um, so Justice Souter gave this talk about Plessy, 
and the Plessy judges. Yeah, we've linked it up on the show like four we or five ha- times. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but it's so, I really would encourage people who haven't seen it to go and look at it. It's on C-SPAN. And it's just very, um, he, he was talking about having a kind of skepticism but also trying to have an understanding. Mm-hmm. And and so, yeah, I just don't, I, I don't think I'm ever going to, maybe there's a point in my past where I would have, but I'm, I'm just, I'm against contempt. Even, even if you think there should be a kind of disrespect or, or th- 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 a certain strain of disrespect in the culture is useful or a certain strain of like hubris about the present is useful, like that that actually serves a purpose, maybe you think that that should not be represented on the Supreme Court, for example. Yeah. That, right? That, that, those, you could believe both of those things. Willingness to think otherwise Absolutely. I'm 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 not only is it important, I'm very glad it's happened on certain very significant occasions um, because I don't think that has anything to do with contempt. I want to throw out three other things about this opinion to you and to Ian. And Mm. I and I insist that we that we talk about them (laughs) even if for 60 seconds. I love it. Right. Three things. One, one, um, I think the best ground that the dissent had and may even be convincing to me. I'm not actually sure how I think about this Which case, to be honest with you. This is in, in Alito's opinion. I think the best ground here is that the Stored Communications Act, which is the act which, which under which this search was purported to take. This and it's been revised since. But. And, and which laid out a procedure for getting these kinds of records. Yep. Right. And that procedure is found wanting because it didn't amount to the warrant procedure. Um, oh, great. OK. Um, a little notifier popped up oh, about nice. a new version of Java. Thanks Great. a lot. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, excellent. Yeah, <laughs> finally, I've been waiting. It, it, it's a reminder to me that I need to extirpate the last remaining bits of Java from my machine. Anyway, um, he, he suggests that you know a reason not to strike this down is he basically gives Caroline Products reasons not to strike it down. Right? That the that this is an area where all Americans basically use cell phones, have their location data, and there's not a reason to think Congress is particularly disabled from handling this situation, reflecting the interests of people in privacy. Right. So that to me is an interesting like what ground is there for court intervention here in a kind of counter majoritarian way? Yeah. Right. That, that it, it doesn't. It, I think that's a really interesting point. The, the second uh, issue concerns Justice's, Justice Thomas's um, uh, originalist opinion, um, which I actually thought if you read it, it's like, it, you know, they might have meant this. They might have meant that. A search might have been. I thought this was the worst advertisement for originalism I've read in a long time (laughs) because it shows a methodology which is completely incapable of producing results. He says, at least it shows that this was really important to them, et cetera. Maybe we can visit that in more detail. I don't know if that jumped out at you guys that that this originalist method really, you know, anyway. So and then the third one relates to this kind of a law for owners and for bosses. Right. This is the which I think is a a strain within the Supreme Court right now, which which concerns me. And. This was in Justice Kennedy's dissent um, where I had this thought that like it seems like there's a central tension here among worldviews and which is leading some to create, even if they don't mean to, a law for owners and bosses. Right. And um, and that tension is between those who see the relation between person and government as this kind of property is exit idea. Right. This kind of old ideal that I have what's mine and the role of law is to keep government away or for government to keep others away and to adjudicate between disputes when they come into my stuff, right? It's a, it's an ato- it's a world of atomic individuals, right, that can only be injured by government intrusion. There are, there are such things as intrusions, right? right, versus a view of society, which I think the cell phone context is only making more and more obvious, as an interconnected web of people 
who are all up in each other's business all the time in all <laughs> kinds of ways, right? Increasingly, like by the microsecond, mm-hmm. up in each other's business, right? right? And that the role of law is trying to make us like to create a system of of uh, where that we can all accept and be happy with, like, and so actually. Along these lines, like there are parts of the dissent that I found compelling, like, you know, I'm actually more concerned about these private companies who are buying and selling these data than I am about warrants. Now, maybe that's maybe that's part of my privilege. Like, I'm not actually concerned about being under government surveillance. Well, at least not yet. I've said enough on the show where maybe in a few years <laughs> I, I have to worry, worry about being rounded up using this information. But like for now. Know. Yeah. But I actually think that the so. All right. That's I've set up a bunch of stuff. I don't know what you guys want to talk about, but I think those are three. Those three things in this opinion jumped out at me as, well, as super interesting. Yes. Yeah, so so l- let me start with I think actually the strength of Alito's opinion, his dissent, um, I think is the best thing that I've ever read from him. It is the strongest of his opinions. It did not move me, but it got close. And I think the reason it's strong is because it is actually an originalist opinion, right? Alito loves to make great sport of originalism and show his contempt for uh, American history, and I do not really understand why he wants to do that. But this showed, for whatever reason— that he, he does have a gear where he takes history seriously, and he took it really seriously in this opinion, and he wrote something that I thought was really, really good, like actually a better originalist opinion uh, than Thomas's stuff, which is, you know, pretty impressive given that, like, you know, originalism 101, you know, must be, you know, the first week of orientation in the, in the Thomas chambers. And so I actually thought that he was able to he was able to find a way to be persuasive in this opinion that, yes, he didn't get the fifth vote he needed to switch the judgment, but, like, holds up so much better than his opinions in cases where, you know, he was, like, squaring off with Scalia, whether that be First Amendment cases uh, like Brown versus EMA about violent video games or Fourth Amendment cases like uh, Hardinez about the, you know, the dog sniff case we matched up earlier with. Um, I, I think that actually it showed... That originalism can be very persuasive, you know, if, if you do it well. If you do it poorly, which I agree, like the Thomas opinion is not, you know, I, I don't think there's much to be said for it. But if you do it well, it can be very persuasive to take history seriously. And I thought he did. And I was like, well, you know, where's this guy been all along? So that, that was that, – that's one little reaction to those kind of cluster of thoughts. And that's that's his uh, kind of his, – his delve into uh, history and originalism on the point of the distinction between the subpoena and, yeah. and a search, right? I mean, he he's, exactly he he really jumps into that and makes you really think. Like, even if you're not an originalist, you're like, wait a minute, um, there is something to the fact that a uh, government rifling through your stuff is different from the government asking you to produce stuff and do mm-hmm. your own, and to rifle your stuff. But like, what should turn on that? And then, what is the warrant requirement anyway? And how does it relate to search? Like. I found myself rethinking a lot of that, which means that the opinion was, I think, quite successful, at least for me. Yes. And, and, yes, exactly. And really, the last page is what I found persuasive, and I'm, it, it actually put me on the fence. I'm not sure how this case should have come out, and that is the the Caroline Products point, um, which is not mm-hmm. – it's funny that you focus on the originalist part of the opinion, which I agree is very well done. Um, it's that last page where he he ha- it's a nod toward like functionalism and um, that, that I found mm-hmm. more persuasive, or I found – Persuasive enough yeah, to put me on a on a on a teeter totter about this case. We as to that, I think what I would say is, to me, that does not feel any different than saying, "Well, everybody has a house, right? Everybody lives somewhere, and so surely the warrantless intrusion of our houses can be of no great judicial concern because the people can legislate for it." But it's like, 
dude, not not to be sort of like too exactly what I am, but like, have you ever heard of like intersectionality, especially as vis-a-vis class, right? Like, I know that rich people have cell phones. I also know that they're not worried about the government tracking them around because I remember when Michael Dreben said that he could search the you know trash uh, of of everybody in the in the country, and the mm-hmm. chief justice responded with indignity. You mean the justices of this court, like? <laughs> But that's not – to me that doesn't move me because like it's precisely the universality of like the thing that makes the intersectional problem strong. Um, whereas this point about history to me, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a sort of romantic formalist. But, well, uh, um, like I acknowledge the, the privilege point. Um, I think what makes his point stronger here is that he pairs it with the insight that the greater th- – that at least a great threat to privacy, actual privacy interests comes from private parties and the buying and selling of this information. That's on the same – page, the last page of his opinion, right? And I think you put those two things together and you you might end up with an intuition that Congress, that to the extent that privacy is, is at stake, Congress might be moved to act. And maybe the court should jump in precisely when or if Congress created greater barriers to the disclosure of this to private parties than to government, right? Right, right now, the, the, well, at least as of, I, I, don't re, I don't remember what the amendments did here to the Stored Communications Act, but... Uh, there is a procedure by which government gets this information and it puts to the government to a greater – at least it put the government to a greater um, showing than, than it put private parties. Like private parties can buy and sell this location information. Yeah. And so if, if the majority uh, – you know, if the uh, privileged majority or, who, or whomever like weren't concerned about that, right, um, and didn't push Congress, then maybe there's a reason to think that um, – well, at least there's a reason to think Congress is not disabled from thinking about the privacy implications of self of cell site location data. And the, maybe the place for the court to jump in is when Congress does a lot to protect the privileged, basically by protecting against like private discrimination, you know, private selling of information, but nothing uh, with respect to to government that that to me would capture that. But I don't know. I don't know. I, I also share like, look, um, I think the government acquiring this information is it's a problem, but uh, I think that the reasons that it is a problem um, actually are pretty well expressed with private acquisition of this kind of information too. Like I understand the government has guns and like the formal authority of the sovereign and things like that, but I actually am – I wouldn't say equally disturbed, but like still quite disturbed by private buying and selling and acquisition and trading and stuff of this information, especially because – we have to make decisions about that kind of acquisition well before we understand what the future holds, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're gathering your location information now. I don't know what it's going to be used for in 10 years, right. five years, 25 years, right? And I have to decide what will be collected and shared before I know that, which makes me feel very risk averse. Like, you know, I don't want to be a crazy person, but like bad things could happen. Um, I, I heard once about a place where a uh, you know racist game show host was elected the president of the most powerful imperial empire that ever existed. Uh, you hear things that make you nervous sometimes, right? <laughs> that like think make you think that like maybe your horizon of possibilities is wider than you really believed and could be more dangerous than you thought. Yeah. And so like think ahead. Like what's the worst thing you can imagine? private companies doing, not even the government. Um, and so, you know, that's, I feel that quite a bit. Well, do you, you, do you like I do it, reflexively hit no whenever an app requests your location data? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely no. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's one of the distinctive privileges of having enough money to buy an iPhone app because yeah. Android privileges don't necessarily work that way. No. Right. And Android, and, and it's, it's, it really, it, it, 
sickens me when you see these maps of like one one that really stuck in my head is like a map of Android versus iOS users in like the New York metro area. Right. Because you could get this uh, from like tweet location information uh, for people who had that on. And all of the sort of low income working class places were Android devices because they're cheaper. They're much cheaper. And they have, as everybody knows, much, much worse software based privacy enforcement, which means that like all of these working people in, you know, the you know, boroughs of, you know, the upper north part of Manhattan and the Bronx and the parts of New Jersey where you can commute from, all of them have to live in this, like, disgusting, you know, surveillance state. But, like, all those, like, you know, nice, rich white people in the Upper East Side, oh, they can hit no every yeah. time that, that they're prompted because they will be prompted, which they will not be on the other side. And I think that is that that really, really moves me, which yeah. kind of Notif- something we were talking about earlier. Notifications, no. Camera, no. Microphone, no. Location, no. You can do all yeah, of that. No. And, and you're, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, so if, if you don't hit no on those things or you're not able to, then someone is going to use all that location information, put it into an algorithm with some other data and conclude that you are not a good risk to for a home mortgage or that you yeah. are likely to be evicted within the next three months uh, mm-hmm. or something like that. So, but mm-hmm. your your comments about the Kennedy opinion and the um, what what I was trying to capture before with this this notion of these two different braids and there's one braid that has the right. exit strand. Yeah. And that to that, to, for, for people grasping that braid and making that their project of privacy and property and exit, um, I think a lot of what you guys were just talking about is, is sort of a blank spot. It's a blind spot for them, right? They don't mm-hmm. see the private power as be- because mm-hmm. that's all, well, that's all stuff you agreed to. That's just you being able to enter and exit the things you want to. What really matters is the power of the state. And that's the one we should be worried mm-hmm. about. We don't need to worry about any of this. Other that's stuff, just right? old wine and new bottles, isn't it? I mean, and, that's and I, just and and I feel like that's again. very, I, I would say old wine and old bottles. And that to me, that is the, yeah, that to me is it's unpersuasive. It, not least because I know from being an antitrust professor that being concerned about aggregations of private power is very much worth the candle um, mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. as a thing to care a lot about and focus a lot about and take and and devote a lot of social resources to coping with. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I was I was thinking as you were talking. I was like, man, this guy sounds like Barry Lynn. Uh, I like this. <laughs> <laughs> so I think um, the the. The people who are grasping the the other braid of of privacy and property and personhood are are getting the way in which, as you said before, Christian, the we're all up in one another's stuff already. It's happened, right? It's already here. So mm-hmm. so so denying that reality now. Now I think the challenge for those folks, it's not really a blind spot as much as it is. It's a challenge to try to figure out, well, okay, if if I can't use the private power, state power uh, access to begin to make some headway on knowing what I should care about and how, um, because the aggregations of private power are just as worrisome, well, then how do I do it, right? What do I do? Um, and I've got this sort of uh, undifferentiated privacy headache mass right. that I need to try to struggle through, and that's tough. And this right? is this more general jurisprudential point that you and I spent some time on in our uh, last uh, pre-roll episode, mm. right? That that if you have a vision of what the court does as occasionally, you know, enforcing strict rule-based commands of the Constitution, but oftentimes using vaguer concepts, mapping them onto society, and trying to deliver acceptable results, 
right? Mm -hmm. Then you're going to be much more comfortable with thinking, yes, this is a part of the Constitution concerned with privacy, right? It is concerned with protecting people from a kind of, you know, an anti-totalitarian state, something like that, right? Right. And what that means changes. Like what it means to be free, right, uh, of surveillance changes depending on on surveillance. Part of this is like Oren's equilibrium theory all over again, right? And which is all over all his opinions, right? And and And, I think it's very, uh, it's worrisome that the, the majority that forms for Carpenter in the context of restraining state power seems incapable of doing anything but making things worse with the First Amendment and other mechanisms where it comes to private firms selling data. Right. Mm-hmm. And and what what was that case about selling pharmacy information? That's Sorrel. Sorrel. Oh, yeah, that was Sorrel. Yeah, yeah. That, that was the original sin of the modern era. Yeah. yeah. So we're, we're like, sort of if ha- there's if the weaponized First Amendment has a mother, it is Sorrel. Yeah. And, and it seems to me that 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 w- what's regrettable about that is because you've you've now you've now made it much harder to deal with the private power problems in this terrain. Um, yeah. At, at just the time when you should be thinking they're just as serious. Um, well, I, and, I, and I think arguably, I think even more serious, mm. right? Like the, like the things that keep me up at night are like, look, I get a vote on the government. It may be a sort of ineffective vote. It may be gerrymandered. It may be whatever. But like, <laughs> I feel like I have a set of tools to like get control of political power that are available to me. I would love to hear an organizing strategy that Facebook would have to actually respond to or that like, you know, Merck would actually have to respond to because they don't. There is no way to get effective political power over them except by like you know seizing the mechanisms of government and kind of buckling them under which is tough when they finance the campaigns um that get government power in the first place so this is why i'm a bit skeptical that like the court i i think will be a lagging indicator in control of private power yeah. right like i i don't ex- these are not our saviors these are well-heeled lawyers who spent you know their entire life um, in a, a kind of certain sort of environment, attending certain sorts of parties and having certain sorts of jobs. They are, you know, I think they're well-intentioned people. I disagree very strongly with many of them. But this is not the, they are not going to save us from private power, right? That takes, you know, I would say that takes, well, a wildcat strike would be a nice start. And then we can go from there. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, yeah, I think, um, you know, the the I've actually done a working on a paper about markets that's about this, but the the kind of equivalent of like revolution against the government is consumer boycotts, right? Mass yeah. boycotts, but also you know you have to you know you you we all have a vote. That's our currency of power in governmental institutions, at least as the electorate and not members of those institutions. And the dollar is the power in private markets generally, right? And you can either refuse to vote for Facebook by not not using it, by not uh, uh, selling them ads, not buying, basically by consuming their ads. Uh, or you can get enough money where you can take them over if they're a public company, right? So, the, And these mm-hmm. like th- those are not great options. And they, they don't really respond to this kind of um, – to the, the, the kinds of concerns that you're both raising. Um, and and in terms of the, I was just thinking like, um, um, I've been concerned about the the failures of freedom reasoning for a long time. I mean, Joe, and I've talked about this. I wrote a blog post about it a while back. And uh, the, it, it's like the First Amendment is if it's a sword, it's a sword which was sharpened by New York Times against Sullivan and the People versus Larry Flint and this kind of this all mm-hmm. the Warren Court. So like, the Supreme Court as an institution is one which has this like reputation, at least among liberals. But I think among a larger population than just hardcore liberals as uh, as this kind of 
I don't want to say heroic, there's some, but it's a, um, a principled institution, right? Even if you disagree. It, it, it is a place where arguments can win. Yeah, right, where argument where argument can matter, right. right? I think that is that's the dream where arguments sometimes matter. But now this sword sharpened during the Warren Court and drawing, and and thereafter, like you know, the heroic little guy, the person who doesn't want to, you know, the, the the religious dissenter who doesn't want to recite the pledge, right? The um, mm-hmm. that that all sharpened the first and made me, you know, I grew up thinking, you know, I, I remember my first inter- my first real glimpse of what the Supreme Court really was was reading a transcript of the oral argument in. Uh, Texas, in, uh, Texas against Johnson, the flag burning case. Sure, and yeah. I, and I had been like I was a high school student. I didn't really know much about law other than that it was about you know then the, the lawyers were on TV and there were DUIs and and they did criminal trials and stuff like that. Right. At the same OJ. time, I'd been reading like some Plato on my own. I was like, oh my god, these people are super <laughs> smart. Like, where are these people in our society? We're a bunch of, like South Carolina politics at that time. There's a bunch of wackos. I'm like, this is nuts. And then I read that transcript and I'm like, oh my God, here's like principled argument. There's this heroic mm-hmm. like First Amendment which stands up for our conscience and for uh, the ability of dissenters to win against power. It's like, it's amazing. And so I was like totally bought into the idea that here's an institution which uses reason and principle uh, and can stand and, and reason and principle can defeat, you know, powerful yeah. interests, right? And, and so that sword got very sharp for me, right? And then once it starts hacking away using yeah. what I've called freedom reasoning um, in, in a Lochner-style way, that's a, to- you know, then it's like, oh, I see, this This is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. One, you know. Once you are pushed upon it, uh, that sharp sword <laughs> right. uh, is not quite as agreeable. Right. And I guess, like, my reaction to this is always, because I, I quite agree with this, and I think most most students of the court or most observers of the court feel that way, too, that, like, ah, at last something sort of, like, Something principled, something where ideas matter. Like this, this feels like the liberal ideal, right? Like it's um, it's committed to a set of decision making principles that are that are admirable. And I would say, even to people who are totally bought in to the concept of like a kind of proceduralist liberalism, which I am not, but I understand, like the great majority of my countrymen are. Why not build institutions that are also responsive? To that kind of uh, argument, why not build a Congress where arguments actually matter? And is it possible that the reason that Congress is not a place that arguments matter because we have this system of judicial review? And now it might not be true, but like all those virtues, I think would be sad to relegate to the least responsive branch of our government. Like when you think about um, the debates about abortion in the middle of the you know the late part of the twentieth century, you know in the United States we got Roe versus Wade. I don't think anybody thinks that that's a masterpiece of judicial craftsmanship. Like it's you know there's literally a book called What Roe versus Wade Should Have Said, which I don't think is a ringing endorsement of like Blackman's opinion, but like. The British Parliament around the same time also legalized abortion in a great many circumstances. And if you read the transcripts of those debates in this, you know, grubby political legislative institution, I'm not sure that they don't pretty much um, stack up favorably against like the, the reasoning of this place where arguments are supposed to matter. And I don't think it's an accident that the UK did not have judicial review at the time. And so... I admire those virtues, too. I just don't want them confined to, like, an aristocracy that we can't do anything about, especially if we're, they're going to sharpen a sword that I then have to fall on. You know, the most compelling thing that um, – well, the, the most compelling part of Justice Scalia's theory, uh, general theory of, of jurisprudence, right, is which is using the courts to create legislative accountability, to, you know, to, to empower electorates, right? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as much as that can be a conservative doctrine, and it often was in his hands, right? Mm-hmm. It is admirable in the sense that it is trying to, you know, that that it is an attempt to think about how to make the legislature function better by making them the locus of reason giving for the people, right? You know, yeah, and, yeah. and making them accountable, clearly accountable for those results. It also reminds me of what I think is the uh, the most the most interesting and and the smartest thing that I ever heard from Jesse the Body Ventura, one time sure. governor of Minnesota, um, yep. who. I, Current RT host when he was um, when he was first elected, like people asked, like, what do you want to do? And and it sounded like a you know just a castaway kind of thing. He wanted to get rid of the bicameral legislature and create a unicameral legislature, partly because mm. all this stuff happened in conference, right? Everything happens in conference, and so mm-hmm. you know we need to like raise the visibility and transparency of legislating. That to me sounds like actually a pretty good idea, right? <laughs> like, that sounds pretty good. That you know make them decide what they want to do in one chamber. Right. Where um, where the actual contents are are voted on and and debated uh, rather than. Yeah. Yeah. Let let me suggest an even more radical idea. That sounds really good. Imagine if that chamber were also uh, responsible for uh, selecting the people who are going to kind of run the government. Um, such that um, you, there actually weren't separately elected legislatures and presidents, uh, but there was some kind of – I don't even know what there would be a word for this system. this is a system. radical new idea that just sounds untested yeah, to th- me. Th- th- this is untested. <laughs> we, we have no idea if this would work. Um, clearly, you know, this is kind of radical thinking mm-hmm. that has gotten me, you know, exiled from polite society. But mm-hmm. like, yeah, imagine you had one one house that you, vo- you voted for. We can still have single-member districts. Those seem okay. Uh, and then they would pick a government, and then like if the person running the government seemed unfit, they could just kind of pick a new person, and we wouldn't have to have you know like a, for- a former FBI agent mm-hmm. like spend months and months investigating them. They could just sort of dump them and pick someone new. Hmm. I don't know. I'm a dreamer. What can I well, say? <laughs> I, I do. Have You're not to, the only one. I do have to point out that the 1930s and Brexit both indicate that maybe there is, you know, may, maybe mm-hmm. no structure is going to be perfect, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, fair enough. Yeah. I don't know. Fair I point. think we, we have taken way too much of your time. I've uh, taken too much of your time. This has been the most fun I've had in uh, at least a week. <laughs> you well, can't given th- that one of those days you were on your deathbed, um, I'm, I'm glad yeah, to hear it. <laughs> given that yesterday I had the blinds drawn watching Batman movies in my hotel room, uh, which is actually how I spent my day uh, on, on sick leave. I oh, watched boy. all three of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, oh. and I will say they hold up. Yeah, I, I no doubt they I'm, weren't that long ago. So I'm, I, well, I, I would just, hope they hold up. I have to say, I just had an, <laughs> I, I have had a recent interaction with a colleague that I otherwise very much respect, who is of the opinion that The Dark Knight is a terrible movie. Wow, and that doesn't just, make any sense. To me, it makes it's no like, sense. First of all, I think all three movies are very good, and I like Christopher Nolan. Um, yeah, I think the second movie, I think The Dark Knight transcends the genre right it is the one of the best movies about crime ever and this made. includes the heath ledger performance as the joker right? yes yeah. i mean that's uh, that to me is key which but, is one of the best performances in any movie about anything in i agree in 20 or hey, 30 years it's a it's a performance he literally i think gave his life for right i mean yeah. I, I don't think that's too strong of a statement i think that it, it is that I don't like the Dark Knight as much as I like the Dark Knight Rises, but Ooh. I love Heath Ledger's performance more than I've ever loved probably anything in any sur- superhero movie and maybe any movie. I'm just going to put a pen in here and say that we're going to have to have another podcast where we spend an hour 
debating <laughs> Dark Knight versus Dark Knight Rises. Do, yeah, do, look. Do you know that Joe and I uh, and and my wife, we at one point we tried to we were thinking about launching a podcast called Hold Up, where we watch movies from the eighties and we talk in advance about whether we think they'll hold up. And then we go and watch, we watch it. Movie, and then we and come back oh, and record. I would, I would I would listen to the hell out of that podcast. Yeah, Are we, you kidding me? We released that sounds a, great. We, we released a pilot. It was called Hold Up, which I think is a great name. Yeah. And, and as you know, I think you know you get the right name and it's just gonna everything's gonna go well the, from there. The right, the right name is is what you require. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my, I have debated with my wife about whether we should watch all of the James Bond movies and then like riff about them afterward um, on a sort of limited release basis. Like we'll do them in order. We'll start with uh, <laughs> Doc, uh, not Dr. No. Um, what is the very first James Bond movie? Um, whatever it is. You know, you we'll know, start with that how one. Do I, be, I said before you and I are leading parallel lives. So there was the sum, there was Bond Summer. When was the that? Su- I, I've heard it called the Summer Bond. But 2009. Yeah, so, so we have, you know, we, we've got a projector and everything. So during one summer, uh, had all the faculty over who wanted to come over, and uh, it was we, watched, we watched all the, them all. all the James Bond movies in order over, that over good. the course of the summer. It was the summer. So, of so Bond. you even did the, uh, you know, the that like '80s period where oh, things yeah. get a little, you know, there's, not not great. There's a and and some of them are better than you think, and some of them are worse. Than, it's really interesting to see what holds up and what what doesn't. And I wonder if what holds up changes over time as you know things come back in style. Um, totally. By the way, our, our episode of Hold Up involved weird science, um, which... Oh, I love that movie. I love the movie, and I love the TV show. I watched the TV show constantly as a kid, because I was like, look, I'm a computer nerd, right? Yeah, the yeah. idea that I could have, like, a hot friend that was, like, also a computer, I'm like, boy, boy you're speaking my language. Well, we were very concerned that, that it might not hold up, that, you know, that maybe there's misogyny and, and sexism. There's certainly a little bit of kind of quasi-racism it, mm-hmm. they're, they're, yeah. it's, it's not un, totally unproblematic, but it's less problematic than I feared, and it definitely it holds up. Yeah. Our conclusion was that it holds up. Ultimately, That's a spoiler. Yeah, it holds now up. no one's going to listen to this up. pilot episode. Um, but I, it, there's an episode. There's a there's a there's an entry in the James Bond canon called Moonraker. Moonraker. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, so you know, as a kid, this is all like this is Star Wars with James Bond. I probably, if I'd gone to it, I would have been bored because there was le- there was not enough Star Wars, right? Yeah, not enough Moon. Yeah, not not enough Moon. Too much Raker, I think. But uh, <laughs> but uh, catastrophically bad. Oh, I mean, just so horrible. painfully bad. I think one of the worst. The nadir of the entire James Bond series occurred in that film, where there mm-hmm. is a. I think there is a what do they call those boats aren't called gondolas the one in Venice yeah are they called gondolas I think yeah I, I guess that's is right. this a pigeon double gondolas, take yeah. there is there is a there is an actual pigeon double take in Moonraker where where they film a pigeon looking one way and then looking again you know as Ooh. you know you know that kind of eighties oh. thing where there's like some random sure. person on the yeah. street who's like Mur? you know as somebody's <laughs> ch- the pigeon is essentially doing that yeah and and they oh, didn't even get God. a real pigeon double take they clearly reversed the tape. Right. So he looks one oh. way, and they reverse it and does the other, and you're yeah. like, "Oh my god!" A hokey pigeon a big double budget enterprise over a over a, a, a Venice gondola that's um, on wheels. It pretty much that made me want to skip to Daniel Craig immediately. Yeah. But what we didn't. No, we that, persisted. We watched them all. We did, we set out. To, right. We accomplished. Well, what we have set you? Out to. So you guys like accidental tech podcast? Uh, have you heard? Um, so John Gruber and Dan Benjamin yeah. did a series where they like watched the Bond movies yeah. and like podcast about them. You must have, you must have. We did this. it around the same time. It was almost yeah. exactly the same time. So I, I don't remember if they did it first or we were doing it at the same time. I don't remember exactly, but um, of course that was, uh, you know, I was a re- religiously and still listen to the talk show, which is probably one of my, it's my favorite tech podcast and always has been. I, but, I would uh, say it's my favorite. Like it's the podcast when, when I was living in LA and working for Kaczynski and I was like just miserably overworked and like horribly lonely <laughs> yeah. um i would listen to that podcast to fall asleep um oh, because yeah. it, it felt like my two friends like yeah. talking about keyboards and i was like this i like 
and I would listen to it and fall asleep, uh, and I have uh, always loved it ever since. Even though uh, Gruber has since become a bit of a you know a, a bit of a Mueller believing lib uh, for my tastes, mm-hmm. but look, you stick with your friends through hard things. John Syracuse on Hypercritical eventually became at least as compulsory listening, and that was the 100 run mm-hmm. episode. I thought when we started this podcast, if we can get to 100, maybe we'll quit then, like uh, John Syracuse oh, no, did. I- I agree. Syracuse, uh, he, so I uh, like ATP is tough for me because I, I'm not going to name names, but uh, like I find one of the hosts to be very difficult to listen to, but Syracuse is so good. Yeah. yeah. I would follow him anywhere. I would listen to anything he recorded. And I've read, I think, everything he's ever written because like I, I love the guy. I admire him. Um, he's I great. Dre- I dreamed of running into him at PAX East. Never did. <laughs> He would, um, you know, he would be a great law professor. He would be a great law professor. He and really he, would. He he doesn't know it. I think. Um, he, no. Although he does have some legal opinions. His his opinion about abolishing all patents was one which he held before I did. Mm. Mm-hmm. He, he actually mm-hmm. convinced me that this was the yep. right uh, legal policy. And, and he doesn't know as much about law as any of us do because he hasn't been to law school. But like, no. does he really He'll understand it better? Does he really understand it any less than we do? I'm not so sure. <laughs> I, I, I doubt it. And it makes me feel bad. Like when he talks about his job, I'm like, this guy's going to work every day. <laughs> <laughs> There's no need for that. John, take the summers off. For God's sake, travel with your family or don't uh, travel without your family. Maybe that's the best answer. <laughs> yeah. He... Um, but can we at least agree before I let you guys go? Can we at least agree that Bane did nothing wrong? Oh, you mean in Dark Knight Rises? Yeah, Bane. Bane is the hero of that movie. I need to see it again. I watch it. Watch it again. I think it is counter-revolutionary history told by the victors. All of the public acts of Bane, which would have been remembered by people at the time, and so you couldn't fake, are quite noble. All of his villainous things are things that happened in private conversations with billionaires that they would have had incentive to lie about. Hmm. hmm. Think about it. You know what? If we reboot, hold up. If we decide ever to do it, we're going to have you on, Ian. Like, I'm glad we should, to hear we that. Have, we just have a, just a bunch of people who are who I think are awesome and interesting. Do this separate and, podcast and series. me and me. Don't forget me. <laughs> right. I was just thinking I'm not allowed on the show anymore. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, um, this has been awesome. Well, and, thank you, Ian. It's yeah. been a great pleasure. I'm very sorry to have uh, held you guys up for a couple of days, uh, but if it is any consolation, um, I was uh, even more miserable uh, at my absence uh, than you were. Which is uh, really saying something. Oh, that's <laughs> sweet. Oh, I'm going to hit stop right there. <laughs>